Well, I welcome everybody. Um, thank you for joining us at the uh, um, conference, that first conference from the Order of the Oak, um, which we've entitled uh, Walking the Walk, Sacred Actions for the Earth. Um, you're all very, very welcome here. Um, I'm Stuart Jeffrey. I, I, I often convene the, the, the meetings. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm an OBOD person and in the, the Druid Network, and, and I'm based in the UK. Um, and co-hosting with me is, uh, is Mari. Hi, and I'm Mari Fix McEwen, Shenavid, Zanetta Bufwish Koya Dentus from the Utree Clan Ewing, and I reside in the unceded territories of the Tongva and Chumash tribal peoples in California. And I'm a council member in the Order of the Oak and a member of OBOD. I'm also a member of the Indigenous Grandmothers of Europe and a founder of Ancestors of the Four Directions. Excellent. Um, so for those of you who don't know, um, the Order of the Oak, um, we're, we're kind of um, a freewheeling voluntary group of, uh, of uh, we're, we're international, we're druids, obviously. Um, we, we kind of focus on advocating, advising real world action stuff um, to, to conserve, to restore and protect the, the divine planet. And um, we have this, uh, in the face of this unprecedented climate change, biodiversity, loss and um and poly crisis um that's caused by by us human people um and we do this through learning teaching strengthening communities and uh, and speaking out as well um so there's kind of three layers um that we we focus on and and this is i suppose part of the learning one Thank you for joining us at this conference where we're going to discuss the pertinent ideas and questions and um, these questions are generally, how do we navigate our current climate crisis and challenge by taking effective action and uniting that action with spirituality? What is it going to take for us to survive our coming challenges? And what can we do to support the earth at this time? How can we work together to usher in the changes that we need to make? What changes do we need to personally embrace so we can stand up to protect life for the coming generations? How can we ground these ideas into real world action that actually turns the tide and doesn't get stuck waiting for politicians to fix it? What are the most effective solutions to implement? And we will be sharing our perspectives and ideas on the subject. No one's gonna really be you know, an expert to tell you exactly what to do, even though we all have ideas. And so when we come together and we share those ideas, we can start um, finding the erroneous ideas in what we share and kind of fettering them out. <laughs> so we, we gain clarity and try to help each other because if we come together and help each other, we really can create a phenomenal planet and something that works for everyone. And if you come into this in with the spirit of wanting to work it out, the spirit of wanting to do the best for the planet, I, I can't see that we could fail, really. Um, it just takes that heart opening. And by the way, if you're listening to this workshop live or via video now, please like and subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel, The Order of the Oak. And you can also find us on Facebook. Look for the bright green oak tree under our name, Order of the Oak. And links will also be posted here in the chat if you are on Zoom. This workshop is dedicated to creating solutions, to sharing and forming alliances, to exploring 
how we can support each other and work together and to opening our minds and hearts into a more effective possibility. By sharing resources and solutions, we can make exponential progress. As a note, this conference will have the space for all of you to participate, to share your questions after our presenters speak. So please make note if something important comes up for you while you're listening, as really the solution is for all of us to take part, for all of us to catch the spirit, for all of us to take responsibility, for all of us to bring our hearts. And I really want to say a big thank you to all our tech people here and John Raymer and the Sign Network for your support and for partnering with us in this grand exploration. We're now going to start and we're going to begin with something that deeply touches us ceremony and an opening of our circle and so i pass to stuart thank you maury okay i'm just going to sort of take us through a, a fairly standard bit of uh, of opening of ritual um so that we open this space in a in, in a fairly standard druid way and uh, uh, and we'll hold this space um, for the next few hours so if you're all sitting comfortably i'd like you to first take three breaths in through your nose Hold the breath and slowly exhale through your mouth. Take a second breath in. Hold for a second and exhale through your mouth. And a third breath in through your nose. Hold for a second and slowly exhale through your mouth. Now, with your eyes closed, I'd like you just to imagine you're, a, you're an oak tree. We are the old of the oak, after all. Imagine your roots extend from your feet into the deep, dark earth, drawing up water and nutrients. Imagine your branches extend above your head into the sky above, capturing the sunlight and turning it into energy. Spirits of the east, of air, of the hawk of dawn and of spring, we welcome you. Hail and welcome. Spirits of the West, of water, of the salmon in the gentle stream, and of autumn, we welcome you. Hail and welcome. Spirits of the North, of Earth, of the bear in the starry night, and of winter, we welcome you. Hail and welcome. And spirits of the South, of fire, of the stag, and of summer, we welcome you. Hail and welcome. Spirits of our places, of the ancestors and of those people not yet born, great spirit, universe, one voice, the all that is, and of course, the spirit of the oak. We welcome you. Hail and welcome. Please all help guide us in this conference today. And I now declare this conference open. Our first speaker, esteemed Indigenous Sundance Chief Reuben George, after serving his nation as a director of community development, he shifted his focus to protecting his territory from a proposed Kinder Morgan pipeline and tanker project as part of the TWN Sacred Trust Initiative. He has also been instrumental in overwhelmingly returning the salmon populations to the water in his region. Chief Rubin is a spiritual leader who was made Sundance Chief by Chief Leonard Crowdog in South Dakota. 
former medicine man for the American Indian movement, sometimes called Chief of Chiefs. Ruben has become one of the best known voices in the media locally and internationally in the conservation and um, proposed Kinder Morgan pipeline and other related issues. Chief Ruben, can you share your insights with us about spiritual activism and how you came to accomplish your work or anything that comes to your heart? The topic also regarding what are we gonna need to do to set things straight and into, into balance and harmony on this planet and how to work together to accomplish this. Um, I really know that you're such, you, I mean, that is what you do on a constant basis. So any of the stories that you tell us, anything that you will be offering will dovetail perfectly into this. So feel free to speak whatever comes to you. Thank you. Well, good morning. Well, ACM, Hoichka CM, CIA, Hoichka JCM, Chief Skalutz, Dansnat, Slewitith, Chief Yupin, Dansnat, Slewitith, Squamish. And I um, found me therapist, but I haven't practiced for about 12 years. Um, well, no, not true. I volunteer at a men's treatment program, and I have been the last 12 years. Um, I, I do miss it, but I was, I was lucky. Um, I was able to incorporate our cultural values into all the programming that I did. My grandfather said, anything you learn in college and university about healing, there's a native teaching that says the same thing. I put that to the test in, in, my, in, in the mid-90s when I was in my 20s. I opened up a healing center for youth, but we got a big grant and we, I hired a couple psychologists and a bunch of elders and we, and we, we took psychological programs that were working in, in indigenous communities and we, and we translated them into native culture, um, stories, legends, and teachings. And that was my thing for all along is sort of traveling and sharing our program and helping people with theirs and and we, we we would we take the program and translate it to their own culture. It's simple. Um, the science teacher in, in Navajo country down there in the States was teaching kids, all Navajo kids, 90% were failing. He took his curriculum and he changed it to 100% being a Navajo theme. And he's a science teacher, but every lesson he did, he put Navajo themes to it. Within six months, within six months, 90% were passing. So with that idea and what my grandfather said, that's what I did. And um, it was pretty successful in rehabilitating and helping our, my own people. I worked in jails and correctional institutes and treatment centers and all over the place. I traveled throughout the States doing that. And I was lucky to do the same thing right in the pipeline. Um, up here in Canada, um, British Columbia was one of the first provinces worldwide to recognize the United Nations Declaration on Indigenous Rights as law. And so did the city of Vancouver. I was at both of those events. But with that in mind, free power and informed consent, um, we've been working on that for a long time already. Within our traditional territory of Vancouver, which, which encompasses all, all of Vancouver and, and beyond that, um, anyone building in our traditional territory needs to have a Tisleewitith Nation permit. So we, we, we do our dig and we look into make sure that there's no remains. We do a historical study and make sure that it's good. We, we do an environmental assessment. We do a whole bunch of things. And then if they pass those things, we give them a permit. 
So, um, so Kinder Morgan TMX pipeline, at first it was Kinder Morgan is a $350 billion company. They didn't go through that process. They didn't ask for permission or they didn't go through our processing. So we, we took them to court, but before we did that, based on Tisleawatooth Nation law, which the core values of truth, family, health, and culture, with all those fundamentals of any religious and spiritual belief of love and honor and respect and dignity, pride, compassion, understanding, truth and knowledge and wisdom. That's a foundation of humanity. That's how we're supposed to raise each other with a with the foundation of, of our four points of our longhouse of truth, family, health and culture. That's our law. So so um, we, we with that law, we created a 1200 page assessment on the Kinder Morgan pipeline. We worked with world-renowned experts in their fields that that, that helped us with, with that. We did a spill analysis. We did a clean analysis. We did multiple economic studies because the price per, per barrel fluctuated so much, especially during COVID. If you remember, um, the price per barrel went under, under $0. And um, so we did all that. And we did, even did an air quality test. And, um, and then we, we took all that information and we went to court and we sued him and we won. So then they, they started going again and they tried to correct some things and they started and, you know, and then, and then, and then Canada ended up buying it. And um, even through that, I, I went to the Kinder Morgan AGM with, um, multiple times, <clears throat> my family, but my kids about four times each and myself and, Went to United Nations and explaining this and and what wasn't good about that actually was that all the information that we had that we collected we shared it with indigenous people all over the world and I traveled that too I went to different places in the world and shared our our model and what it was based on and then and then um they sold it to Canada because nobody would buy it our, our campaign was to discourage any investor because it was a stranded asset that it wasn't profitable, based on based on their analysis themselves, on a on a on a time period of seven years, they said it would take um, twenty years to pay off that seven years of debt that would be accumulated while building the pipeline. Now it's twenty one years it's going to take, and actually our our own analysis says it will be twenty two years, so it's going to take sixty years to pay off. So we explained that to all the investors, so nobody would buy it. So ended uh, Canada ended up buying it, and then then we took them to court again, but we lost. And th this was the hard thing to swallow is because we actually won, but we lost because our our arguments that we brought up were were saying you know you're going to kill the orca whales, and and they and they 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 said yeah that's true you're right, your analysis is right they're gonna they're gonna die. And I said, your economic, and, 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 and we argued that Canada's economic analysis was wrong. And they said that too, yeah, to slay with your nation, you're right. Canada's wrong. Then they turned around and said, but we're still going to side with the best interests of Canada. Well, this is crazy. This isn't just. And then our submissions, we, we, I think it was ours was about 700 pages. And I can't remember what Canada's were to the Federal Court of Appeal, the three judges just below Supreme Court, we submitted all of our information to them. But what we, we, of course, we have to share it with, with who, who are fighting. We, so we shared our information, our submissions to, 
to Canada and, and they shared our, and they sent us theirs, but we sent them a hard copy <laughs> and they took notes on that, on that hard copy document because we could see them. And then they took those notes and they put it in their own submissions. So we, we went to the three judges and say, hey, look, they copied us. They submitted it. They agree with us. It's a, it's a, it's a bad idea. It's, the project's not good. They agreed with us. And the judges said, well, we're not going to look at that. So it, what we had, it was discouraging, but we sort of felt this because the Canadian courts are only a branch of Canada. And, and what they protect, protect is um, pipelines. And it, and it happens all over. I'll show you. Um, I'll show you some things here. My my son's girlfriend. Um, she put on a. She put on a a, um, a a dinosaur suit, and she climbed climbed the Kinder Morton or TMX fence and played badminton. This is her right here. And, and she's going to jail right here. You know, she's on the right. You know, and what was brutal about that is 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 they um, you know, I, I worked in the court system and I seen people with 20 charges of break and enter and caught. And they never received jail time. She's she's she started university when she's 16. She's got a degree by the time she's 20. She's Went to school, got working on second degree. She's 24 years old. She's a good kid. And, and she climbed a fence with a dinosaur suit on, like, you know, and played mad badminton and, and infringed on the Kinder Morgan pipeline. But somebody who, who's, you know, does 20 break and enters and gets caught, doesn't get no jail time. Because she did that, they gave her 21 days in jail. And they told her straight out, said, every time you do that, it's going to get worse. And it's going to get worse, and and so she's in jail right now, <laughs> and and um, that's 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 what we're dealing with in Canada. It's it's but we're we're we stopped it though for eleven years, and and we discouraged um, twenty one um, um, insurance companies because they need insurance to build it. We're 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 going at the banks too again. We're going at the banks and exposing them, and and it's it's it's. It's hard work, and and but it's 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 worth it because Slaywatith means people the inlet. I there's the water right there. I can see it, and and um and that's our mother, and and we protect it because we work within our law. I think when we're born, we're born with no prejudice, no anger, no hate, no judgment, and 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 you could see it in a baby. They they love you just looking at you. They just love you. They're not, they don't see race or color or gender. They just see a human being and they just love you. And, and those fundamentals I'm talking about, that's how we're supposed to raise. But what I see now today is that our world is lacking spirit, but it has to be guided properly. And, you know, not all ceremonies are good, but it has to be guided properly. And, 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 and setting that intention is the most important in ceremony to stick to those core values of what I talk about, love, honor, respect, because that's how I work. 
you know, I'm not perfect myself and I'm not even a good example about how to be. I have a lot of dysfunction I have to work on. And that's a big reason why I still continue to go to ceremony. And then it's the truth. But I, I, I'll, I'll move forward and work with people to try to, to try to be a better human being. You know, through ceremony, I was lucky enough that, you know, when I was in my addiction, I wasn't a good person. Disrespectful to women and my family and not a good dad. And, you know, and, 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 I, and, and through ceremony, I was able to um, pray really hard and connect to Creator and give myself some freedom because I, I, I sincerely said sorry. And that gave me freedom. But also all the bad things that happened to me and people hurt me when I was a kid. I sincerely forgave them and that gave me freedom. And, and you know, so I, I do this, but I, I also, in my work, but I also do business now too, because what I feel is, um, you know, you need money. <laughs> you need money to win. So we opened up a... I don't smoke at all UCBD, and that's the reason why we opened up some dispensaries. My kidneys went bad, and I started using CBD, and that's the only thing that helped me. And um, and my pancreas, my liver too. <clears throat> and and so we opened up seven dispensaries, and we opened up a thirty thousand square foot state of the art grove. We did it in our own sovereignty. So so meaning that there's a a, a decision that happened up here. It's called the Chicolton decision. If you live on the land, you own the land for indigenous people. But the sovereignty too is there's 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 laws around that. There's so there's sovereignty on the reservation, but there's sovereignty in our traditional territory. So so in that within that sovereignty within our own indigenous law, that's how we open up these dispensaries. And and um we eventually just got licensing after two years, we we or three years, we we got federal and provincial licensing where we're looking to open up more dispensaries. And, and, the, and then another thing happened that was really, really unexpected. And, um, you know, coming from the healing field and, and, and looking at the world and the state that we're in, it's really dysfunctional people that make choices for us. Like, they're like, look at Trump. You know, the, the best thing the Republicans could, could ever do is get the biggest, loudest buffoon in there to distract everybody from all the crazy things that they're doing. And it's crazy because the biggest recipient of social assistance in the United States is old white men. And then the biggest people, category of people that vote for Trump is old white men. <laughs> and, but he's he screwing them over. He's screwing everybody over. Unless you're making a couple uh, hundred million dollars a year, you're, you're getting screwed. And that's the same thing in Canada, except Trudeau tries to look good. But he's just as bad and he's making those bad decisions that only service a few people. And so what I see is it's lack in spirit. So even if I stop this pipeline, which we will, there's still 17 other pipelines coming from there. So I'm, I'm dipping back into the, into, um, into the healing. And I'm going back into the healing and, and, the, and, and I thought I'm doing something that I never thought I would do because, you know, in my addiction, drugs and alcohol and like, 28 years sober, but I started working with um, traditional medicines. Like I, I, I work at and volunteer at the men's treatment program and they kept on falling off and I said, they need help. And, and then I, I read an article on ayahuasca and it intrigued me. Then my friend who's a doctor, she posted something on psilocybin. So I phoned her and I asked her some questions and I said, hey, what is this? 
she goes, it's, it's, it's helping people tremendously. And I was like, really? How? And she explained it all to me. So I had a, I went to my buddies who we opened up the dispensaries with, and I said, hey, look at this stuff. It's, it's helping people. And he goes, I'm already on it. I've been working on it for six months. And so I went and talked to um, uh, four different organizations that, that work in psilocybin. But we ended up working the people that we talk with. So we work with about a dozen doctors from neurology, psychology, um, psychiatry, MD doctors, NA doctors. And they started explaining the process of psilocybin and, and as a psychedelic to help people heal. And then we said, okay, let's let's ex explore that. For about six months, they kept on saying, you got to try it. You got to do it. You got to, you got to do it. And we wouldn't, none of us wanted to do it. And then finally, you know, I was sitting there in a meeting and, 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 you know, the teaching came up. You can't tell somebody what to do unless you're willing to do it yourself. So I did it. And, you know, I, I have, I, I have, you know, once in a while depression, anxiety. And so I tried it and I, I said, I want to heal the trauma. I don't remember. And I know this for a fact that in the field and working in, in this field for a long time, that, you know, generational pain is passed on. And what we believe is seven generations. Studies, studies show that medically it's three generations that we could prove. So what it's like, it's like a, it's like an open wound. It's like an open wound on your arm. You might need stitches or something. And, but that's, that's like a wound because our society is set up to fix physical, mental, and emotional trauma. But it's not set up to fix spiritual trauma. And that's sometimes how it's passed down generation to generation. If you look at it this way, like all of you here, you love somebody. You love your kids, you love your husband or wife, you love your partner, whatever, you, you love somebody. And how that happens is two people come together and then, and then they could fall in love and that's a spirit. Two people come together, a spirit comes out of that and that's love, like, that's like smudge. You take any element of earth, fire, earth, water, sky, those elements, this energy, the sun, the earth, what you take that and you add any two elements together or the same elements together, like smudge, you get sage and fire and you light it and smoke comes out of that. But with intention, that's the spirit. And that's what you smudge yourself with. And I've seen those ceremonies all over the world. I, I, you know, they don't even, most of the ceremonies that went all over the world, they didn't, they'd run it in their own language. But I knew it was going on because they're doing those things. They're lighting smudge or singing a song. You know, you physically have a spirit and the air has a spirit. Sing a song. Those two things come together and form the spirit of a song. Happens over and over and over again in all these different types of ceremonies. So if you can have love, and that's a spirit. And in, in remember I said psychology, modern, you know, they take your mental, emotional, physical. But if you could fall in love and two elements come together, what if it comes together in a negative way? Somebody hurts you or abuses you. And then, and then that's, that's two elements coming together and forming a spirit of trauma. That's what that is. And it's like an open wound. And think of the trauma that your grandparents went through. That could be open wound. And, and one trauma that people don't recognize. And, and so spiritually, we close those wounds. 
But a trauma in itself is lack of spirit, genuine spirit. I mean, I mean, I'm talking about when we set the narrative for our ceremonies, love, honor, respect, dignity, pride. That's the things we talk about. When you go in my ceremonial house, my sweat lodge or sundance or whatever it might be, your spirit sits in the center of your being. And when you're comfortable, your spirit will expand to the size of my sweat. But what that is, it's pushing it out. You're pushing your spirit out. And you say you got something stuck in your head that has could be related to trauma. If you keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, eventually that trauma is going to shrink. And it might go away. So it might scar, like you might have a wound and spiritually you scarred it. So you healed it. And that, that's what we do. So in this ceremony, that's what we do. And it's a little bit different because in my Sundance, Everybody starts where they're at. And the goal is for them to achieve a higher state of spiritual consciousness. That's, that's like experiencing a little bit of heaven. And then that's where the real change starts. That's when you tune into who you believe in as God. and You tune into your ancestors and you ask to create those changes. And, and, but there's a process. I'm going to go run a sweat lodge in a couple hours. And, and I teach there. I teach at the lodge. We do pipe ceremonies. We do vision quest. We do multiple different types of ceremonies, all leading to one ceremony, and that's the Sundance. Some people may take 10, 15 years to achieve a self-induced higher state of spiritual consciousness with no medicine. It may take them that long to get it. So what the difficult part is, and I, and is, I used to say this, don't, don't take a medicine that brings you to a higher state of spiritual consciousness without getting there yourself first. I used to say that, but now I don't because I help people with that. But the integration after you take this medicine with us is that we integrate those things that you should have learned at the sweat and the pipe ceremonies and the Sundance. We, all those things you should have learned before you got there. That's the integration. But so far, we did about 60 residential school elders. My mom went to residential school, and she witnessed hor horrific things. Like she witnessed a nun killing a child, kicking the child in the head, and it's brutal. My grandfather, Chief Dan George, he's nominated for Academy Award, and he wrote, wrote a couple of really good books. And, but when he went to residential school, he's five, and he spoke his language. They cut off his finger for speaking his language. Uh, and, and it was brutal. It was brutal what they experienced, but what I witnessed is these traumas with the residential school survivors we, we were open wounds. And it's not just my mom's generations, it's going three generations back of residential school. So they closed their they closed the wounds of their grandparents to their parents and closed those wounds to themselves. And I seen amazing miracles, really good healing. So one thing I believe is that, you know, I could stop in that pipeline. That's good. And those people that are creating the pipeline have, have no spirit. I could teach spirit. And I think with the doctors that I'm working with, we could even do it with this. And that's our goal is to change people, to change people, to have them to connect to something more beyond themselves. And we're having some pretty good success because 
we're getting some pretty influential people in government coming and wanting and being interested. We got a huge, huge grant from Canada, a huge grant for two years to run, run psychedelic programs for, for residential school elders. We did, we're making a documentary and, and I'm, I'm just gonna share it real quick. This is my friend Gabor Mate. Check this out. In this country, yes. it's illegal to deny the heart. Right. It's not illegal to deny the genocide of Native communities, which continues to traumatize people. Because now you're denying their experience. The developing story out of British Columbia, the remains of more than 200 children have been located, buried on the site of a former residential school. We all knew there's bodies buried. It was all whispered about. You know, our suicide rates are three to six times national average. One in two children in First Nation are born to poverty. Incarceration rates, depending on the province, could be 30 to 60% incarcerated. Yet we make up roughly 5% of Canada. So something's wrong. They stripped me of everything. My language, my spirituality, my culture. So the child has been traumatized. It's like it's going to last forever. The traumatized consciousness then takes that into adulthood. Instead, there's no hope. People who are meant to respect themselves and one another start to load themselves. So in each generation then hurts the next, and hurts the next, and hurts the next. My people are having a real hard time, all, all of them. And we really need something. We don't want any more kids to grow up without their parents. And, and if we could do something to heal, I'm all for it. I'm all about saving lives. See, there was a time when the world isn't like it is right now. There was a prophecy that said that the Indigenous people would rise up again. And knowing who we are, our culture has never been lost. But we have been lost in the colonialized system. So I dreamt uh, of my mom and I was telling her, gee, mom, we lost our language, don't know any of our medicines. What are we going to do? And she said, don't worry, you'll dream. Our people have been guided to these medicines, this plant that has this healing power. When they use it, they're able to be grounded again and to have that spiritual connection with this life on Mother Earth. To go back to my spirituality and my teachings, my culture, that's when I started to find out who I really am. You are an answer to the prayers of our ancestors. You have a responsibility. Help your people. You know what to do. You know what to say. We stand on the shoulders of our elders. They're our strength. And we have to put the next generation on our shoulders. The strength that you carry is the same strength that we learned our culture from, from elders like you. I know who I am today. I'm a slave white woman. But it's necessary that we as a culture turn to you for the healing. Because the healing principles embedded in your traditions and your culture are so much wiser, so much more connected. I believe there's a path here with the plant medicines that can help heal us. By learning how to deal with it, I want to learn how to love myself. We're teaching each other. 
some things that we forgot. As you heal, it'll help heal this whole toxic society that we live in. Nothing wrong with making good people better, and that's why we're here. Well, my life, I've been waiting for um, the good to happen. I'm sure. That's what I've been waiting for. So Thrive created that video and um, Sacred Circle is the organization that we formed. And the, and the, the first elder in there is, um, she's a residential school survivor and, and it was a touching story because she's like, because the trauma that she experienced, she was unable to hold her husband and hold her kids. And she said, I, I want to love my grandchildren and hold them. And, um, and one ceremony that changed. And then she got her whole family to do our program. All her adult kids and now we're starting the grandkids. So far, over 10 of them have. And um, we put through about 60 elders that have similar stories that are changing. And we, we put through a, a, a guy in the States working with army veterans, we work with a couple of different teams. And Phil Lane, our, our, you know, my spiritual father, he's, he's, um, people don't know this, but everywhere he lived, he got a degree, Harvard and Stanford, but they more know him as a spiritual elder. That's good. But he, um, we work with each other too. And he, he, he put through um, this billionaire. He owned like a couple thousand acres in the States and it was a hunting ranch. After one program, he said, it's no longer a hunting ranch. It's a, it's a healing center. That's what he created. And, and, and that's what we want. we want. We want to heal people. But we, we, want, to, we want to deal with help um, influential people too. Like we did Canada's funding this significant amount of money to, to do a study. And we already know what the, what the outcome's going to be. But I work really hard. I work really, really hard in, in environmental issues. And it costed me my health. Um, I did multiple stats. You know, they say your kidneys go bad because diabetes or heart problems. I did so many tests that my heart's fine. I don't got diabetes. It was just stress. That's all they could relate it to. My kidneys and pancreas, my liver gave up. I was doing 12-hour days for about four years straight. No holiday, and and I hurt myself five years, and um, and and uh, this will stop this pipeline. But there's still 17 others. But I think we could do it this way too. I really feel, and and all those guys that we believe they're they're spiritual leaders in their communities, and they're former chiefs of their nations, and and our sister there, they're all they're all leaders of their nation but they're all spiritual leaders, but they're all educated too. They're all business people. And um, we, we all believe in this. And we all believe in, in creating change and, and the people we work with, we love. You know, they wanted to help us, but what they ended up is getting more help from us, I believe, because we changed their lives too. When we set the narrative with the medicine, because anybody could do it. Anybody could do it. You could go get some anywhere you want and do it. And, but you need the cultural backing of those teachings. You, you need the, the, those fundamentals of what I'm talking about. 
truth, family, health, and culture is Kosalish law. You need you need those you need to set the narrative with love and honor and respect because what happens is if love, honor, respect, dignity, pride, all those teachings of humanity I'm talking about, when you instill it in your being, but you have dysfunction in yourself, when you have dysfunction in yourself of greed, of anger, of hate, of racism, whatever it might be, when you have that and it's in you, it's a trauma, some sort. But when you go by the, when we set that narrative, your spirit listens. Physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, you listen and you push that out of you and you come out new. That's what we believe. And we're so new now that, you know, we're having a hard time keeping up with that. Almost 200 people that we helped. We don't have enough facilitators, but we're, we're working on that. And that's why we're getting this grant to make see that we could get more money and great people like Gabor Mate. Check his work out too. He's, he's been doing it for, I don't know, 25 years, this psychedelic healing. Amazing guy. He's such a good guy. Check out his books. Check out his videos on YouTube. And when he came to our ceremony, he, he, he's going to help us. And he looked at what we're doing. And he goes, you know what? I want to participate. So he ended up participating. And he, and, he, and he walked away. And he was on Joe Rogan and different other shows. And he said, that was... And he said this to me personally, he said, that was the most profound spiritual experience I ever had in my life, how you guys did it. And and because and, and, we fill in those gaps. We already do self-induced higher state of spiritual consciousness with no drugs. And, 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 and this is a gift that brings you there. But we incorporate those values of what I'm talking about that are important. We set that narrative, which is nothing but good intentions, which is very important. But if you try to run those ceremonies within your dysfunction, it doesn't work. And you can hurt people, especially yourself. And so it's, 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 it's a good thing. A lot of people want to work with us. A lot of people see and know what we're doing and they really want to work with us. And so I'm still doing the environmental stuff. I got a book coming out. Where it's, it's going to go into manufacturing in about two, two three weeks. Um, I was like, I don't want to do a book. And my buddy said, let's do a book. And, and I was like, told my son, I said, what, what do I do a book on? And he goes, it's easy, dad. It's Star Wars. And I went, what? Star Wars? And he goes, yeah. He said, um, the Georges are the rebels. And the evil empire is Canada. And I said, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we, we did a book and the, and the publishers think it's going to be pretty good. So we'll see what happens. And that documentary should be coming out pretty soon. And, and, um, and, and um, the secret circle work we do is if you want to look it up is, is you know, probably do secret circle then thrones a couple of keywords of first nation. If you look up sacred circle, a whole bunch of things pop up, but if you look up sacred circle and then you do first nations and psychedelic healing, I'm sure you'll find it. You know, if you want to follow us on on um on Kinder Morgan fight, TMX fight, it's it's sacred trust. And and uh yeah, and you know I I, I get I get my strength because I, I believe in what we're doing. The spirit of what we do is important. Spirituality is simple. I, I just explained one part of it. You set that narrative for yourself and have the courage and strength to follow that, to change your patterns, to be a better human being. And why not? Why not love more? 
Why not be happier? Why not? And it's simple. It's really, really simple. But it, it's, it's changing our patterns. It's difficult. And I get longevity for doing it. I'm doing from ceremony. And I, I, I've been in ceremony for about a month straight. And um, I got one more month to go. And then I'm done our, our winter ceremony. But I, in between, I still go to my sweat lodges. I'm going to go ahead and run a sweat pretty soon. And that that's the longevity. You know, and my friend, she's joking, but it was serious. And she goes, I, I, I know why you pray all the time. And I go, why? And she goes, you'd probably be crazy again if you didn't. And that's true. I, I'm not doing it because I'm a holy person. I'm doing it because I don't want to go backwards into the dysfunctional person that I was. And like I said, I'm not a good example about how to be and how I teach in my ceremonies. Sincerely, is, is, is I'm, I have a lot of elders and brothers and sisters that help me and aunties and uncles. I have lots. And, and our goal is to teach people to surpass us. If we're not doing our job unless you're surpassing us. My kids, they teach me now. They teach me, and that's our goal of how we should create a community. And we have, I have like about 800 people that come to my Sundance and more in the winter ceremonies. And it's a beautiful life. It's hard, but it's good. Thank you. Thank you, Chief Ruben. Really appreciate that. There's so many points that you made that are so important. You know, uh, you know, oh, even the colonialism and what has been created and this system that possibly is not really in, in harmony with our heart, you know, of, of having, you know, somebody at the top and everybody flailing at the bottom, et cetera. Um, the question is, is this serving our heart? And and maybe the people that had originally put this in to um, the consciousness, you know, were coming from trauma. And, and how do we heal that trauma within ourselves so we can move into a place where we can really do what's in our heart for the best for all concerned and everybody wins. And that's to, to start bringing that about, how do we start bringing that about, that about? How do we open hearts? How do we, how do we work together to make sure the, the earth stays um, in a way that we would want to hand it down to our children? And, and something that is really important that- Can I make a comment on that, on that one part? Yeah, sure, of course. Because <laughs> um, we have a, I would like to open up the chat for questions for Ruben. Um, he can comment on that while that's happening. Um, so if you have any questions for Ruben, please start putting them in the chat. Go ahead, Ruben. So, so Gabor alluded to it a little bit. Well, a lot. He said, he said, following indigenous culture is going to, and watching you heal is going to help us heal. And that's a key thing. And the ugly, ugly society we live in today, there's consist, consistent, constant trauma, atmospheric rivers, floods, droughts, fires, um, addictions, people dying, shootings everywhere, in, in, in daycares and high schools and everywhere. It's, it's, that's a consistent and constant trauma and we, we normalize these things. And, and so when you look at that story in that video, it's, it's it, you know, it, what we change it to, it's like a sad story when you see that. All those horrible things happen, residential school survivors. But 
at the how we're making the movies that don't don't look at this as a sad story for the indigenous people. Look at it as a story for hope for yourself. <laughs> There's lots of trauma, and you're not immune to it. And and we have to heal ourselves. You know, one of the hardest things that I deal with people in the sweat lodge is people who haven't had spirit in their life. And it's not just one, their own life. It's multiple generations of no sincere spirit. That's trauma. That's an open wound that you have to, people need to heal and scar like maybe their grandparents or parents and didn't have spirit in their life. And, you know, and then talking about that sincere stuff, like that setting that good narrative and pushing out that things that don't match. I just had a comment. Thank you. I know that, you know, something that you've talked about over the years and um, because I know you so well, but um, is the fact that in our spirituality, sometimes we compartmentalize things. And, and what that means is we'll say, oh, I'm a healer or I'm a this or I'm a that. And then we don't do the other part of it. like. Um, oh, I'm a healer, so I won't do activism. I'm, I'm something or other. You know, in indigenous ways, we do what's appropriate at any moment. And so um, what happens is if somebody was going to pour a whole bunch of poison in the water, we don't just sit there and wait for somebody else to do it. We take action because we see that that's part of us. That's going to affect part of us. And we take it as a clan take action as a clan so it just doesn't uh, involve one single person doing everything just totally burnt out completely but how do we work together in that way so so we can you know uh, help each other because then maybe a few people will do something but it's a concerted effort it's like a, a an effort where we we know what's obvious and what needs to be done um, and and instead of just saying we're a healer or we're this or that, we're everything. We have the ability to be everything. I mean, we still have to cook our dinner and stuff. So we're a cook too. And we're, you know, and if we need to grow crops, we're going to grow them, you know. <laughs> so, so the thing is, uh, yeah, some people can specialize a little bit more, but, but to bring ourselves into um, alignment with knowing that we have the ability to respond at any moment to the situation. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dog was the real deal thing. He did, he did a lot of miracles. He did beautiful, beautiful miracles all the time. But he'd never ever call himself a shaman or a medicine man. I've worked with guys in, from Central and South America and they'd never call themselves a medicine man or a healer. They'd never do that. And, and I don't like, I didn't even call myself chief for the first 10 years I was chief because I, I'm just Reuben. <laughs> I'm not an elder or nothing. I'm not a healer. And I, I don't re restrict myself by putting titles on myself or, because we all need to grow. And, um, but like, I think one other one of your points is, oh, I, all my spiritual stuff is everywhere in this house, and um, you know when I when I do ceremony a lot, but if I need a goal and a vision idea, if there's a problem with my kids, my family, my community, 
the Kinder Morgan fight, the Trans Mountain fight. Like we have to be innovative. And and we did this. We we did this. And so we we'd sit in our spiritual room and we'd pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and, and we until we found a way. A way to fix my family, a way to fix our community, to have a vision and goal for our community. You know, my, my uncle taught me that because when he, he became chief in Slaywatooth 30 years ago, there's only a secretary and himself as the chief on the payroll. And he, he created a vision and idea by praying in a room. And uh, he um, got us to the point where we got economic sovereignty, economic independence. You know, we employ over 250 people. At one point, we had zero unemployment. <laughs> now we hover around, around 3 3% of unemployment, below any national average. And, you know, the, the goal was to heal our community. The goal is to have economic independence. The goal was to have more culture and more spirituality in our community. But he found a way. That's my point. And I do that. And actually, all the staff that I work with, they do that. Uh, yes, <laughs> they do a really good job because there's, I have two, two um, 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 law firms that we work with and they, they come to ceremony. And, and we have two policy analysis people that are just brilliant. They come to ceremony, but they find a way. They find a way that, to go after the insurance companies, go after the banks, to go to United Nations. We find a way. We find a way to expose them. We, 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 we find a way because when you start to think of that and you pray on it for so long, you know, it got to the point I was like, everything when you're praying for, it, it, it happens. I, I prayed, I said, I want to debate Richard Kinder of Kinder Morgan, who owns the pipeline. And two, late, two days later, I got a call. And they said, hey, do you want to go to the AGM in Houston, Texas and Kinder Morgan AGM? I said, yeah. They said, well, pack your things really quick. You got an hour to get to the airport. We're booking your flight. I said, yeah, okay, cool. So I went and debated him, and it was really great. It's really great, but that, I was finding a way. So when you, when, you, when you think of yourself, it takes practice. Every single day, I pray every single day to find a way, to find a way to make things better and to find a solution Easy. yeah i think that, that um real briefly on that uh you had and this is just going to be very inspirational for people uh you had this incident where a hummingbird came in from prayers and i don't know if it was it became part of the tree network or something in the area but what happened is uh the uh in two sentences, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but um, the hummingbird, because of the prayers, shut down uh, the action that was happening on the corporate level and made it so an area was protected so it would stop something. So you never know what will come into your aid, you know, to see this as a multidimensional situation instead. So, yeah, that was that was some of our allies. They, um, they're really good. They, they, um, like there's laws in Canada that you, you can't disrupt mi migrating birds existence here. So 
the hummingbirds came from south, the South, South America, Central America, and they flew all the way here and they nested on, on the route of the TMX pipeline and they found them. Our allies found them and they, and they, and they halted all construction for um, uh, four months. So we did that with also the salmon when they're spawning and uh, we, 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 yeah, so th those things, <laughs> those things work. Mighty Hummingbird stopped the multi million dollar. I think they spend about 70 million a month. So it stopped it. I think yeah. somebody was asking about how to accelerate helping people connect with spirit. And maybe we can make this short. Um, I think we need to move to the next speaker. But um, do you have any suggestion on that? What was the question? Um, how to help people connect with spirit. How can we accelerate that happening on the planet among people that maybe are not doing that? Uh, you know, I, I pray, I pray and pray and pray and pray. And, you know, you could do simple ceremonies, you know, anywhere there's water, you could pray. The colder it is, the better in the way I see it, go jump in the ocean. But that's the thing too, is like when you go in the cold water, you know, in the Cree way, I'll explain that a bit. When you go in the cold water, you know, like a baby when it cries, it goes, <sighs> and that's what the water does to you. <sighs> so, so it's doing something for you. <clears throat> but in the Cree way, if you if you go to the ocean, look where the water's coming from. If you go to the river, you look where the water's coming from, and you face it, and you ask the water spirit to help you face your fears, and then you do a couple dunks. And you just look down, still facing out, and look where the water's going away, like to the shore or down the river. Just look down and, and you ask the water spirit to take away any hurt and pain and negativity, and you do a couple more dunks. But what else is happening there is because your breath is getting pushed. You clench and unclench your body and you and you push out those things that, that are not part of it. And then and if you're if you're looking for something, pray really hard to find a good place to go and pray because some aren't good. Like I tell people, even on my own sweat lodge, if you're disrespected by me in any way, you have permission to leave. Don't, de don't take any disrespect from anyone, especially in ceremony. You're not obligated to stay anywhere. If it's abusive in any way, or you feel disrespected, leave, leave immediately, including my ceremonies. I don't want to, I'm not like that, but if I happen to be grumpy or anything, you don't need to take it, especially in ceremony. You should always leave feeling joyous. You can pick and choose you're going. If you feel BS, don't stay. <laughs> but I pray for that. And wherever you're at, just pray to find a good place to pray. Well, thank you very much. Um, this has been wonderful. And I want to pass to Stuart to pass to um, uh, Dana. And maybe we'll bring in Patricia later if we have some more time. But uh... um, I'm sorry, I, I have to go. Um run my sweat lodge. Okay. But Thank I really you. appreciate you and sorry, Dana, I didn't get to hear you, but love and blessings to you. I, I have to go in a couple of minutes, but I'll probably try to answer a couple of chat things and then I'm going to go, but blessings to you all. Thank and you take, so much, Ruben. All right, take care. I'm going to mute. Thank you, Chief Ruben. Um, so our second speaker, um, Dana O'Driscoll, um, 
before we get in there, do um, do start thinking of questions as as the speakers are speaking, and um, we'll open the chat up at the end um, of, of each session so that you can you can type type some questions in there. So um, uh, so the chat isn't uh, isn't distracting. That's the the whole point of leaving it to the end. So D Dana O'Driscoll, welcome. Um, uh, Dana's um, uh, Grand Arch Druid of uh, AODA, which is just the best title ever, isn't it? Grand Arch Druid. <laughs> um, permaculture designer, homestead author, um, known uh, around the Druid community for um, practical actions and application of, of, of knowledge um, has, a, has a fantastic book out a few months back, which uh, is just wonderful. Um, Dana, talk, talk to us. All right. Well, I'm not great speaking off the cuff, so I have a presentation for you. <laughs> so thank you. Really, really appreciate. I uh, just want to start with some gratitude, um, just obviously to the land that sustains us out here. We are in Western Pennsylvania, which is the traditional uh, land of the Susquehannock. And right now the maples are running and we are collecting the maple sap in a very ceremonial and honoring way and drinking it each morning. Um, and of course that, pr that produces maple syrup. So it's just really wonderful here. So I just really wanna thank everyone for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to share today. Um, and of course, gratitude to the living earth and all that sustains us and all the spirits of the earth. Um, so I just want to tell you a little bit about me. Um, I am a, an animist by a regional druid. I live in Western Pennsylvania in the United States. Um, and I live in an area that is really quite difficult here. Um, I live in an area that's been a major extraction zone through three centuries in Pennsylvania. This is uh, where we have natural gas fracking, uh, mountaintop removal, uh, mining, 3,000 miles of acid mine drainage, forests, um, unsustainable logging, uh, coal power plants, nuclear power plants, you name it, it's here. And so I sort of consider myself um, on the front lines of some of like, okay, these are the worst things that could be happening to the land. But also my family, as a, I've, I'm a white person, completely white, and my family has been here for three centuries, which means that the entirety of the history of this land where I live has been my family engaged in extractive activities. So a lot of what I've tried to do in my life is say, okay, how can I repair some of this ancestral damage um, what can I do to live my life differently so that I can create a new ancestral tradition that is better and different? So that gets me into permaculture design and wildcrafting and rewilding and herbalism and um, living on a five acre farm um, and doing just a lot, anything I can do to support the land. Um, but that also means that for some reason they put me in charge of the AODA. <laughs> um, and so, um, and the AODA is a, a global druid order that we also focus a lot on practical action and on ecological like really focuses and focusing on helping people reconnect with their local landscapes and learn how to build a spiritual practice surrounding their local ecosystem um i'm also a member of obad as some other people are here and i was uh one of them out hamas hamas scholars a couple of years ago and of course i'm the author of a couple of books and oracles and so on and so um those are my handles there uh, at the bottom um, so I'm going to be talking from these two books today, um, Sacred Actions and actually the Sacred Actions Journal, which just came out last week. Um, and I'm sort of going to provide an overview of the philosophy of it and sort of what, what it is and then kind of deviate in a couple of places as well. Um, okay, so I just want to talk a little bit about the problems um, and sort of what led me to come up with this concept and you know, sort of these things. So obviously I've talked about my own context here. Um, living in an area that's extremely extractive and having this sort of burden of, burden of ancestral legacy and saying, wow, like 
what can I do to change this? How can I support indigenous communities? How can I support white people and anyone who's here who wants to figure out what to do? So obviously our daily lives is earth destroying. It's, and, and we can't say it any other way at this point. Like we've gone too far, you know? Maybe 20 years ago, people could deny it, but we can't deny we're in a climate crisis and we're facing the sixth mass extinction. Um, we have a lot of global leaders who are engaging in lots of talk and no action. And we sort of have this exploitive relationship that most of Western civilization has developed with the earth. So then you enter something like Druidry or nature spirituality, and you're like, wow, nature is awesome. Nature is great. I, I honor nature. And then I'm going to drive my gas guzzling SUV to a terrible job. And there is this, there's this major conflict, right? You end up having this challenge where you're like, wow, what can I do? And then of course you have somebody like me where I have my own positionality and my own ancestral history. How do I undo these terrible colonial legacies? How do I undo this legacy of extraction? And I know that we've got people all over the globe, but you know, this is something a lot of Druids here in North America that are, that are, that are both a colonized religion, but also colonizers themselves face. And so we really need to you know, sort of think about how do we, how do we address this, right? Um, but there's also a really an inner dimension to this, um, not just aligning outer inner beliefs with outer actions, but thinking about relationship with nature. Um, I've kind of become convinced over the process of my own evolution that if I did not make so many direct physical lifestyle changes to do what I could for the earth, I don't think that some of the deep spiritual experiences that I have with the land would be open to me. Um, in other words, I think that nature will always interact with anybody. But if you start really walking that walk and not just talking that talk, I do feel like, and recognizing I'm not, I'm not separate from nature. I'm part of nature. Um, I can learn from nature, but I also have to show up and do my part. And that's not me leaving a little offering by a tree to say thanks. That's me living my life in a way to say thanks. Um, so, and finally, of course, just how do I become a good ancestor? My ancestors weren't great ancestors to this land and to, to, to me, and how do I become a better one to uh, future generations? And that includes all life, not just human life. So these are sort of the, the background through which I really think about this. Um, and I wanna spend a little bit of time talking about animism because I actually feel like animism is a gateway into so much thinking about sustainability and sustainable living. And the more you put these things together. Um, and so the way that I've been taught is all things come from nature, everything has spirit. And we've just heard that in the talk, of course, um, spirits can be worked with, learned, and honored. And a lot of this to me is how am I in right relationship with these spirits? Um, so, you know, how am I in right relationship with um, plastic, one-use plastic, which has its own spirit? How am I in right relationship with something I would consider waste? Um, how can I honor the sovereignty of trees when I need to cut some down to build a house? And starting to really think about if everything has spirit, how can I interact with those spirits in a right relationship? Um, and so I find that like framing some of these philosophies and animism is a really helpful way of saying, okay, it's not just that I want to do good because I want to do good. It's because I want to build a different relationship with nature. And so I really want to do good because I want to build a relationship with these spirits. So that's kind of some of the some of the ways that I've begun, to, this is more more evolved thinking than I wrote my book, which my book took about five years to publish after uh, I finished it. So just some of my new evolved thinking, if I ever make a revision to the book, this will show up in it. Um, so this is the sacred actions wheel of the year. So what I did is I took these 
issues and I basically put them in a wheel structure, which is really common and comfortable for neo-pagans um, and a lot of people practicing Druidry and other earth-centered religions, um, particularly those accessible to white people like me, right? They're not, they're not, they're not appropriative. Um, and I created a basically this concept of sacred action. So sacred action is recognizing that we can live in a sacred manner in our daily lives. We don't have to live our lives separated from nature, but rather that every choice is an opportunity to engage in a care-based relationship with nature and a regenerative, a healing-based relationship with nature and not an exploitive one. Now, that's really hard because the entire system is based on exploitation. Um, but that's the idea. So we can engage in sacred action, we can build this into our lives, and we can focus on different pieces of it as the wheel turns. Um, and we don't obviously have to do this all at once because that can get really overwhelming. So I'm just kind of going to go through some of the ways that this can happen um, and go through each of these and then share a couple of other things and then we can open it up for questions. Um, so at the winter solstice in this wheel, um, we think about the ethics of care. And I actually pull this from permaculture design. Um, I add my own spin on it, but I add my own animist spin on it. Um, but permaculture design has this beautiful, wonderful ethic that I think is extremely potent. And it, it becomes like a heuristic. So you can say, oh, um, okay, how am I, I need to do something. How can I engage in earth care, care for the earth, recognizing the sovereignty and dignity of all life, recognizing that humans original purpose was was being caretakers of the land. Um, and I got that from Tyson Yankaporta's Sand Talk, which is one of the best books in the world if you haven't read it. Um, how do I engage in people care? How can I take care of the human communities, my family, myself? How do I only take what I need? That's fair share. How do I distinguish between a want and a need? How do I recognize that, hey, consumerism and materialism are identities that they want to force on me that maybe I don't want. And then of course the animism piece here is how do I also be spirit aware? So how do I do these things while also engaging in ceremony and interacting with spirits and recognizing that that is an important part of ethics? So we move into Imolk, which we of course are celebrating right now with yesterday being the astrological Imolk. And in the wheel of the year, uh, in this in this system, um, this is all about reskilling. So we as human beings have learned how to tend our own needs. And in doing so, we've actually removed ourselves from the land. So um, ancestral skills, honoring our ancestors, how do we provide some of our basic needs? Maybe that means growing some of our own food. Maybe that learns means learning to mend so that we are consuming less. Um, I have foraging here. This is, uh, I teach a lot of wild food foraging around my region. It's one of the ways I've found that I can really engage with a very conservative public group of people. Um, um, I don't do a lot of public ceremony or anything like that because where I live, it wouldn't happen. But this is a way that I teach um, some of these things um, and thinking about these, these sets of skills. So they can be lots of things. Um, but it's basically saying, how can I work with nature to learn how to provide some of my direct needs from nature rather than letting an extractive system do that for me. Um, so the foraging example here is when I teach wild food foraging, I think about the difference between in my ecosystem, we have um, common milkweed, which is now becoming more and more endangered. And we have plights with uh, butterflies, monarch butterflies, and all of these things. So I teach people how to gather seeds and seed their own patches of milkweed. And then I teach them how to eat it once they've built a patch of milkweed. Unlike say multiflora rose, which is in my ecosystem, 
um, a really, um, I don't like the term invasive, it's a very opportunistic plant. So we eat as much of that and harvest as much of that as we can anytime we've seen it. So we're learning how to build our skill set, and we can use both of these plants for food and medicine. But the way we treat them depends on sort of our knowledge base. So that's just a little bit about reskilling. Okay, so the spring equinox is thinking about our relationship to um, waste and consumerism. So the driving engines right now of progress, right? Um, thinking about really doing this, this one requires a lot of reflection because a lot of us have been so socialized to buy it immediately or to see our identities wrapped up in the things we buy. Um, and so recognizing sort of the inner and outer dimensions of this. Um, and of course, recognizing that waste is a resource um, and working to sort of decenter a consumer identity so that we can become whole people and we can become more than defined by what we consume. And of course, that allows us to cultivate an actual inner life and all of these things. I have a photo here. This is my gander, Wittershins. Um, and he is uh, helping me make an eco brick. So eco bricks are made with non, um, this is non-recyclable plastic. This is like all the films and things that you get. You often don't even know you're going to get it and you get some a product and then it's wrapped in plastic on the inside or whatever. Um, and if you smash all of this down into a, a, into a two liter bottle, you can build a, create a building brick. And there are sites all over the world that will take these building bricks and put them into structures. Like the Pittsburgh Zoo near me has a whole wall they're constructing and they'll take as many of these bricks as I can build. So I'm essentially then seeing this thing, this waste that would go into a landfill, I'm now turning it into something that can be used and that all of that waste can be locked up. And that is a sacred thing. I am treating that plastic in a sacred manner by saying, how can I give you a second life? How can you be turned into a resource that can be used? Um, Beltane. Um, Beltane really focuses on the home and the hearth, recognizing that our homes are sacred spaces. And therefore, when we are engaged in our daily living, our daily, everything that we're doing in our daily lives, our water consumption, our energy consumption, how we eat, what we, what we cook with, how we light our homes, all of those become things that we have an opportunity to engage in more sacred ways. Um, and of course, every person lives very differently. So what my sacred action in my home looks like would be really different from yours. Um, so one of the things that we've put a lot of energy in is working on cooking um, and finding alternative cooking methods. So this is actually an earth oven that we've built on our property over the last couple of years. It takes um, a very small amount of wood to heat because it's very well insulated. And it's built with all materials that we have either here on the land, like all the cob, all the clay is from the land, or broken pottery from our house um, and uh, old wine bottles and things are in there for insulation. And what we actually do is once we fire this, it will bake for us with a tiny bit of wood for 10 hours. We can literally do a whole week of baking in this one oven. So we've radically reduced our energy consumption by using this oven. And it's literally just, we, we get sticks that fall from trees and we don't even have to harvest any wood. We just go around and pick up the sticks as they fall. So this is a great example of like a way that we were able to really reduce our um, fossil fuel consumption for cooking and also create community and create spaces for people to share. So that's a, an example of home and hearth for us. Um, the summer solstice thinks about food and nourishment. So recognizing that as long as we are in an industrial system, um, industrial systems are exploitive. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're eating a tomato or a piece of chicken, they still have death and exploitation tied to them. 
Um, pineapple is one of the worst things you can eat. It literally destroys entire ecosystems. So even though it's not an animal product, it's still a problem. So um, in this, we try to think about, okay, how do I eat locally? How do I grow my own food? How do I learn about where my food comes from and maybe create more regenerative practices surrounding food? How do I create deep gratitude practices so that I can honor the food and where it comes from, even if I can't control everywhere, because maybe financially I can't afford ethic, more ethical food, I can't afford organic food, but I'm at least going to honor that food. Um, and there's a loaf of bread that came out of our oven. <laughs> um, so, you know, these sorts of things we think about at the summer solstice. Um, Lunasa. So this is where we move into our local ecosystem. And this is a part of this that I feel like I have like a really strong feelings about generally speaking. Um, how do we tend the land around us? How do we treat, how do we take our land from consumptive spaces? Like a lawn is a space that consumes fossil fuels. It consumes resource rather than making it into a productive space, like where there can be habitat, where there can be food, where there can be birds and all of these things. Um, and I'm gonna share a little bit more here because this is an area that I'm working, I've worked on because of where I live um, and because of these ancestor ancestral challenges I have, I've really spent a great deal of my own time and energy thinking deeply about land healing and tending the land and honoring the land um, and thinking about different ways that we can do this. So heart spaces, opening our heart spaces, bearing witness. So the forest down the street is, is getting cut down. What do I do? I can't stop it. It's already happening. Can I watch? Can I hold space with those spirits? Can I go engage in ceremony to support that land during and after? Um, those sorts of things. I talked a lot about action already, but also this idea that we humans are a tremendous force for good. We have the capacity to regenerate. We have the capacity to scatter seeds. Um, and a concept I've, I've written about this on my blog, and I have a book coming out next year that talks more about this is this concept of refugia. Um, we can create spaces for life to thrive. And even if life isn't thriving in all of the land around us, we can create a pocket of life that can thrive in these difficult circumstances. Um, so that's just, you know, really to get in deep. And I could talk about this all day. I guess I just like, so this is sort of my core practice um, is really thinking about land healing and land regeneration. This is sort of what we're doing today, the fall equinox community in the broader world, right? How do we bring people together? How do we help our broader communities actually transition? Um, it's, it's events like this. It's going out in our community and sharing what we can, um, recognizing that there's so much more need for leadership that has an earth care orientation and not an exploitation orientation. Um, and at Samhain, which is our final, um, our final part of the wheel, is also examining ourselves and our ritual uses. Um, we don't want spiritual practice to be another consumer identity. So how do we craft our own, um, our own spiritual tools? And I'll point here to plants like Palo Santo, frankincense, sandalwood, white sage, aloes wood. All of the big plants that you would go buy at your metaphysical shop are all on the endangered species list. Why are they on the endangered species list? Because these were traditional, these were traditional plants used by traditional spiritual people for spiritual purposes that have now been appropriated more broadly. So how can you learn what's in your own ecosystem? Um, I have beautiful white pine and, and Norway spruce trees on my property and they produce a wonderful resin that I can harvest and I know how much I'm harvesting and I can harvest with ethics and gratitude and permission 
And now I'm not harvesting, now I'm not taking the frankincense that belongs to a different culture and that's been exploited and over harvested. So I think that this is a really important dimension that we often don't talk about is how does our spirituality become um, either a healing identity or one of consumption. And I'm framing these in either or. They're not really either or, but you know, for as short of amount of time as I have, like there's a lot of gray area, but um, just a couple of other things. Um, thinking about meaningful lifestyle changes and things that matter. Um, it, you can get really, really excited about all these sustainable things and you can kind of go off the deep end and then create a bunch of things that actually aren't sustainable. So my suggestion is small, slow, make one positive lifestyle change, keep it going. And then when you've got it going, start another one. Don't try to do a million things at once, unless you think you can, if you're going to radically change your whole life, then maybe you can, um, really like, you know, this, this drawing here that I made is like, you are climbing the mountain and it's okay to take some meandering. Your goal is to climb this mountain to become a better ancestor that is nurturing and care oriented and earth oriented, but recognize that you're starting at the bottom and it's going to take time to climb. Um, find others who are working on the path, recognize that this is sacred activity, that you can ritualize these things, that you can create all of these ceremonial practices in your life to really build these things in. Um, and of course, um, recognize that many solutions that are presented them to, them, to the, us culturally are to buy more, and we want to sort of resist that. And finally, um, ceremony and ritual and regeneration. I really want to just really thinking about what is the sacredness of all things to go back to that principle of, of animism what is the what is the what is the spirit and those things and how can i respect and honor and engage so like you know compost that's a sacred thing i have conversations with my compost pile my compost pile tells me okay it's done i'm done leave me alone we start a new one you know and and it, this isn't just me dumping food waste into a pile. This is me engaging in ceremony with my compost pile. I, I, we, we talk, we have almost, you know, weekly conversations. Um, and this is so it's, it's such a different dimension than me just composting. Suddenly I'm communicating with the soil web of life and I'm part of that regenerative cycle. Um, and of course, recognizing that as soon as you start doing these changes, like you can keep spiraling and that, you know, I've got a lot of spirals in the art I'm sharing today because it's just like this deepening practice. You can just keep going. And every time you do this, your relationship with the land changes. Um, and I think that's really important for all of us. So thank you so much. I hope that was interesting to you. Um, and I will stop sharing and happy to take some questions or have some discussion. Dana, thank you. That was superb. Um, if we could open the the, the chat to questions, um, um, thank thank you. That was absolutely brilliant, and I, I just love the idea that you're uh, chatting with your composters. Uh, uh, oh yeah, talk with your is... compost. Talk with the one use plastic and see what the one use plastic says. <laughs> um, I, while, while people are typing and, and forming their questions, um, if I could start with the uh, start with the question, really, you yeah. talked a bit about. Um, um, the, the colonialization and mm -hmm. the history and the the, the awful history that that yeah. us as as white people have have raged on the planet effectively. Um, how, and, and you've talked a little bit about how how that might start to change. And, and uh, but you also said within your community, it's quite a cons quite conservative area. Yeah. 
given the time constraints to, to 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 do some stuff how do we again how do we accelerate that how, how do we engage with 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 people that just do not want to listen okay so i think it's really important that we meet people where they are okay so i have this problem when i lived in michigan i started a permaculture meetup which is still going strong like 10 years later but i moved back to pennsylvania saying oh i'm just going to start a permaculture meetup we'll all get together we'll talk about permaculture how to transform we were doing like all this like we would go to a person's house with 30 people and transform the lawn into a garden in like one day and it was so much fun and i get out here and like nobody wants to nobody even knows what permaculture is they don't care a lot of the local farmers think it's an affront that we're doing all of this farming without moderate like without fossil fuels which is what we're doing here in our land um and so you know i had to say okay well where can i reach people in my community because i live in one of these really deep red areas um it's extremely conservative you know my neighbors have a militia you know like that's kind of where we are we have we have hate groups in this area and I also don't know if I'm very comfortable being a, out, out being a druid in this area. But what I discovered is that a lot of people are really interested in wild food foraging and plants. And so I decided, how do I help teach people how to not spray their lawn and respect the land and do some good? So I basically teach in I basically teach invasive plant wild food foraging. I don't teach them anything that's endangered. Um, I don't, if I teach them a whole bunch of things about their lawn. Okay. Now they're not going to spray their lawn. Maybe they're not going to mow their lawn as often. I teach them how to eat multiflora rose. And, uh, you know, we, you know, we go, I teach them about the acorns and the, um, you know, and we just like end up, that's where people want to be. And so it doesn't matter if I'm a druid, it doesn't matter what our politics are, but people like to go in the woods and they like to be able to eat things. And I'm teaching them the value of nature and showing them that they can have a relationship. And I give them that handout I showed you on the slide that's all about the ethics of foraging. So it's not just, hey, this is the Walmart of the woods. It's, hey, if you're going to take from this land, what are you giving back? Hey, here are some milkweed seeds. Why don't you scatter them for me? So, you know, it's this like, you have to meet people where they are and you have to figure that out. So like, it's not easy, but if I move somewhere else, I would probably look completely different, you know? Fantastic, fantastic. I'm just looking through the questions. What have we got? Um, there was one question for Dana. Um, uh, someone asked if the slides would be available. Yeah. Um, I can post the slides on my Druid's Garden website, um, and um, I can if I can post them on my site, and and I also can share them with you if you have a if you have links and things. So yeah, I'm happy to share those. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Have we got any other questions? I've got a, I've got a billion. I can keep going, but I, I don't want to hog it. <laughs> Go for it, Stuart. Uh, <laughs> oh, here we it. go. Uh, okay, I see. Okay, Fredo's do, do, question. So you there's a, a, yeah. a long one about um, uh, the animist question. Um, yeah. uh, as a lifelong animist who sees spirits, can you yeah. allow that in the view of some this animist materials synthesized chemically from non animals like plastic do not possess spirits? Nonetheless, what can we do to avoid their use, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the question, right? So the question is, is do things like cell phones and one-use plastics have spirit or not? And the argument that I would make and, you know, what some of my own teachers have taught me is in the end, everything comes from the earth. So in the end, everything has spirit. And I would, I would say, you know, maybe take a moment to talk to that Pepsi bottle before you throw it in the recycle bin and see what happens. Um, and then, you know, I'm not, listen, you could believe what you want, but, you know, I think, you know, see, see for yourself, I would say. Um, 
so I would, that would be one thing, right. Is, is sort of, you know, I think that a lot of people have no problem in accepting the fact that nature has spirit, but everything comes from nature. So here I am drinking out of this Mason jar, right? This Mason jar comes from nature. And just because it's a few steps removed doesn't change the fact that it comes from nature. And the longer that I interact with it, the more maybe we have our own relationship. So um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, a, it is a difficult question. I think that if you start saying some things have spirit and some things don't, then you get, you, there's a lot of slippage there. And then it becomes a lot easier to ignore certain things rather than look at the whole system, right? The whole, the whole world, um, um, a spirit. Um, so what can we do to avoid, avoid their use and repurpose them? Yeah. I mean, I think that each of us has to, the thing that I've really have, have had help in my life is sort of looking at what's coming and looking at what's going out, um, and looking at where I can impact. So I didn't talk about this, but there's sort of like in permaculture, there's this idea of zones, right? So zone one is the zone we spend the most of our space. And meanwhile, like zone five is like out in the woods or in our community. And maybe I don't have a lot of control over zone five, but I have a lot of control in my home. And, you know, I run a writing center at my job and I have a lot of control in that writing center. So I'm going to make sure that everything that I have direct control about doesn't have one use plastics. And that's the way I'm, 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 I'm dealing with it. So I think that each of us has to sort of look at our own unique circumstances and our own lives and say, where can we make the most leverage? And what would, where would we get the most? Maybe for me, one use plastics isn't the issue. Maybe it's the acid mine drainage down the road that's polluting the local river. And if I could actually do something about that, that's actually a better use of the limited time I have. And so part of this also is like, what is, where does the most good need to happen? And how do I leverage that? And maybe I'm just going to keep throwing things in the recycle bin and try to avoid them because I'm going to put my energy to the river that really needs my attention, for example. So that's what I'm saying. Like, we all need to sort of figure out how do we do this and how do we do this in ways that are sustainable for ourselves, which, you know, is different for every person. I, I live in the country and I don't live in a city. So I have really different kinds of things I can do. And I have to depend on my vehicle. And I don't really have a choice for that, where that's a different choice for other people. Yes, that's, uh, thank you. That's, uh, that, that, that idea of, uh, uh, you know, tr trying to uh, tr try not to bore the ocean, I suppose, is, is is how we say it in certainly in the UK. You know, you, you can't do everything, can you? And um, focusing one's effort is really important. Well, and um, recognizing like that we're all doing good work and we're all here together. So, like in AODA, the Ancient Order of Druids in America, we currently have almost two thousand members. We're still a pretty small druid order, but every one of those two thousand members has committed to making three lifestyle changes at every degree. And they've all planted at least one to two or three trees. And so suddenly that's not so small, right? Like, and, and we're all having these conversations about how do we make these positive changes? Um, and now we all do ceremonies on behalf of the earth four times a year. So suddenly my small impact for me here on my five acres changes when I start networking with others and seeing the good that they're all doing too. So I think that's like, it's not just about what a, I mean, sacred actions is ultimately what do I have control over and what can I do, but also how can I connect with others so that I see that the little things that I'm doing, when suddenly 2000 of us are doing, wow, that's actually a much bigger difference than me just doing these things. So finding like-minded like communities, I think, and sharing and growing together are also really important pieces of this. Excellent. Thank you. Do we have any, any further questions for, for Dana? Okay, I can't see anything going in the chat. Um, is Facebook required to sign up? <laughs> no, with not AODA? at all. 
<laughs> you could be an AOD and we don't have no no social media. We don't care. <laughs> we do have a Facebook group, but we also have a Discord server and a forum. So you know you can you can use one or all three or none. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Dana, that was that was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, I can't see any more questions popping up. So um uh huge thank you on, on behalf of everyone here and um please hang around um, we've got a couple more speakers coming up um and uh, and and yeah i mean the, the the book i've certainly read the first one i'm looking forward to the second so uh, Great, it, it is just absolutely tremendous thank you thank you i have a comment um i oh. I, I really i love what you're saying dana it's just that to really allow yourself like you're doing to really reflect on what you're doing and as a person and and what the best way to put our time in and and this whole connection thing about when we connect with others we can see what they're doing and then it it brings a bigger picture and and even with chief Rubin, um how they connect working in consort with each other sometimes we haven't quite done as much of that in the world and so it, it's like us against the world when we're we're um thinking that we're this separate thing just kind of rallying against the world versus how can we kind of see our, ourselves in partnership and then if we communicate in partnership across those those lines and um, what can we bring together? Because as we, each one of us um, gets uh, more of an idea on how to connect more uh, appropriately or stronger to source and, and stronger to uh, how we change the earth, uh, that, ener that energy that we're cultivating is gonna go out exponentially to other people. And it will be like, something that just kind of takes fire suddenly it just happens you know and so what i see you're you're doing is just so powerful and if you have any comment about that at all that'd be great well it's actually interesting because um i was thinking and I'm, i have a friend here who is listening in <laughs> and we were we were actually when we were listening to chief ruben you know we were talking about how happy we were that this was happening and how it's so exciting because it's like it's almost like anywhere I go. I mean, obviously, like I'm going to places like Eco Village is like, let's be clear, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to food forests. I'm not going to big, like, I'm not going to big consumptive places, right? But anywhere that I go, I'm hearing people have the same conversations, but they're using different frameworks. Like, so I have this conversation from a permaculture and druidry perspective, and from a perspective of somebody who is trying to really like decolonize, uncolonize my own thinking and behaviors, right? But I go and speak to a group of, say, herbalists, and they're talking about that same conversation through sacred plant medicine, or I go and talk to a group of, you know, permaculture designers who don't necessarily want to deal with, like, the spiritual aspects I deal with, but that are really excited to, like, transform a five-acre, you know, field into an oasis of life, right? And, and so I think that despite the fact that we have all of this mainstream media that is saying to us, bye-bye, consumes, consume, these pipelines and these people have all the power, more and more people are really waking up to this. Um, and to give you another example, since the pandemic started, our order has grown exponentially. Like we've had more like we had, you know, we went into the pandemic with maybe like 1300 members and now we have almost 2000. Last year we had like almost 400 new members or something like it's just, and we're not a big Druid order, we're a small Druid order, but it's like, 
And every person who's joining, like we get to see all the applications because they say, well, why do I want to be a Druid? And it's like, I need a lifestyle change. I love the AODA's ecological focus. And there's like so many people are waking up and they're yearning and they're recognizing. And I think as hard as the pandemic has been, it's also sort of been a disruption, like a tower moment. But now the tower has crumbled and now people are saying, okay, that life didn't work. What can I do? And a lot of them are turning to nature spirituality. And I've talked to people in Obot and ADF and other big Druid orders, and we're all seeing that same thing. There's like this explosion of people who want to learn how to connect with nature on a spiritual level. And to me, that's like such a positive sign because wow, like that means that what we're doing is important. And I'm I hope that everybody out there finds their own way of doing that because we can find lots of ways back into nature. And then anybody who wants to experience that connection with nature will have a lot of avenues to find it. So yeah, I think that those data points are just like, oh, it's just so exciting to see that so many sort of people who, oh, maybe they were interested before, but now they're taking the plunge. And that's like so exciting. That is amazing. And and the one other thing in that is when you, even when you reach out to these other groups and you find an avenue in, like you were talking about uh, in your area, maybe they don't want to be druids or whatever, but you find an avenue into what interests them, then suddenly you are able to energetically be present for them and provide something energetically that might grow into something. And suddenly they start having their own ahas on it. And suddenly they are, they start opening to all these other things. So yeah. it's just providing that, that way in and, and the want that all beings aren't suffering and, and the way that, you know, that the earth, uh, um, can can be you know fortified and and honored. Um, I see what you're saying is so beautiful, and um, I just really my hands are up to you, and I thank you so much. Uh, it's just beautiful. Can I share one more thing as like a final thing on this? Okay, so there's a local forest, White's Woods, that we've been fighting for three years to try to save from you know the conservative government who wants to cut it down and make like a million dollars on all the tulip poplars. Um, and me going in as a druid and I'm open with these people like I do and I, they brought me in as a wild food forager but now they know I'm a druid and it's been really interesting because I've been able to go in and identify like do a bunch of physical things to help identify endangered plants that are in the forest that would be at risk so we can sort of provide that to these assessors and things like that but it's also neat because sometimes I've had a more than one conversation with people about well can we do ceremony in that woods what would that ceremony look like and even though I haven't like brought that up like I'm bringing to the table like the physical things that they're interested in so we've done a bunch of plant walks but I'm talking about these plant rocks from like a place of reverence and a place of respect and honoring and suddenly now they recognize there's more and so some folks that have gone to those plant walks have come back to me later and now are interested in like well if I wanted to do something for White's Woods to help protect it that and they don't even have to have, they don't have the language you know but it is neat how like I do think even in more conservative and rural communities like where I am there are inroads and it's just a matter of knowing the audience and knowing what you can say and kind of take into the edge of that and maybe some people take it a little further and that's really exciting too. Thank you everyone. I really appreciate your time and inviting me to speak today. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. That was fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay. Um, Maria, I think I'm introducing the next one according to our list. Is that right? Fantastic. Yeah, I think we should uh, head into uh, 
um, Harriet. And then if we have extra time in between, we'll go to Patricia if we have time. And then we'll go to Steve, I guess. Okay. We'll see. We'll see what transpires, really. <laughs> see how it goes. See how it goes. So uh, our next speaker is um, Harriet Sams. Um, he, Harriet, are you on the screen yet? Can we, can we, can we bring Harriet's focus onto the screen? That'd be great. Um, uh, Ah, there's Harriet. Excellent. Um, Harriet works as a tutor for the uh, Taraki Trust 10 Directions, um, does ecotherapy training, uh, druid with OBOD, um, PhD researcher in archaeotherapy. I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit about that. Um, a, 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 an author, podcaster, public speaker, and, and so forth. Um, Harriet, how do we save the planet? <laughs> <laughs> good, yeah, good question. Good opening question. Um, I think... Firstly, to um, to just drop into that place of gratitude for listening to uh, to Chief Ruben and and Dana as well, hearing the words and thinking, what am I going to say? You know, the, there's I just feel so honoured to be in the presence of people who are already really walking with feet firmly rooted onto Mother Earth um, and the ancestors behind them and the future generations in their in their gaze and. Part, part of that means that my little humanness right now is is kind of muted because I it's it's such a beautiful thing to see so many people already working with real devotion to whatever it is that the earth is bringing to them um saving the planet let well I, maybe I'll, I'll start a little bit smaller than that and um and explain and talk a little bit about 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 the uh the idea of um who speaks for the land? Um, you know, um, the planet needs saving. Um, perhaps that's a, a narrative that's that's really powerful and really, really, you know, it galvanizes and motivates people for sure. Um, however, perhaps I'm just a little bit long in the tooth and I feel I've spiraled and spiraled. And so the land for me is speaking in a very nuanced and complex way. Just perhaps even respect uh, reflecting what Dana was saying about. Uh, the plastic bottle having speech having speech and and communicating in some way and that land in that bottle as it were although it has been through those cycles to move from the sort of petrochemical origins of it but you know of course going right into into its uh, its prehistory paleolithic understanding it was a, it was a being in some way um that speech is speaking something and i i'm i'm very much now just at the point in my process with with activism with psych, uh, psychological activism eco activism spiritual activism where the land speaks to me really strongly um i i i lived during uh, the covid uh, pandemic i lived in a totally rural part of france because to be absolutely honest i was wanting to escape because I was feeling extreme overwhelm, I would say, with um, the state of, of British culture, of society, of politics, of the ecology, of the landscape. Every time I lived in a beautiful valley where nobody was really there, every time I, ha I had to leave the valley, I, I just felt the, the great acceleration stifling. And so I left to go to France because they felt like a, um, I needed to escape. Um, and as time went on, I realized that the, the land, my land, the land I grew up on and I, I, I and the ancestral land, perhaps um, in the loosest possible terms, um, 
was asking me to come back and it was a conversation that started and I and it, it was very much like having a relationship with someone who you didn't really want to hear what they had to say um you know just come back come back oh I don't want to come back because you're a mess you're you know it's it's too painful I'm in love with you this is too painful um I run, I'd rather be in my little place in France where you know I can I can you know hide um, but I but I did come back to cut a very long story short and um, the land now has claimed me and I realized that I um, and I walk the land now and every step is just is so sacred to me but I, I had to think I think I had to leave um, to hide and then to come back in and I think um, now um I've moved quite a lot from social justice and activism, which is what I used to do quite a lot um, with the Quakers and with um, the Climate Psychology Alliance and things like that. Very much, sort of at the that question: How do we save the planet? You know, what's our responsibility in this? Um, what you know, what do we have to do? And I I was working at that kind of level for a little for a while, um, trying to gently meet people and say perhaps it's a question where you have to ask the land first um, and feeling that resistance, feeling that kind of, well, actually, no, we're in this paradigm where um, the solutions must be achievable. We must be able to fix things. And so you can tell me what to do to fix things and through acquisition and technology and that kind of thing, the paradigm can be healed and fixed. You know, we there's a problem, we're panicking about it and we're going to fix it. Um, and I was sort of, gently saying well actually there's something that has to be embedded rooted grounded before we can get to that level um and so i i think that's part of the reasons why i i, I sort of retreated for a little bit so that i could come back and feel that that sort of rootedness was in myself as well as ruben said right at the beginning you know to sort of heal my own trauma before i could be rooted enough to be able to step into saying the right things for the for people who needed to really feel it um so to cut a, a very long story short um my work really does focus i think now on um, bringing people to the land and um so uh, imagine that spiral that Dana was mentioning. Um, so in ecotherapy, when I teach ecotherapy, there's ecotherapy level one. Um, so us Druids, we like everything in, in three. So imagine that the, the entrance to really uh, the very first touches of I'm, I belong to the planet, the planet and I, you know, are, are rubbing along together. And I all of a sudden very conscious of this, this, this level, these levels of crises. Um, but perhaps they don't know what an oak tree is to a, an ash tree. And so there's a, there's a level one that's really, really important, which is just just go out. You know, I give you permission to go onto the land uh, to understand the weather, you know, to, you know, to, to realize that some places are, are good sit, sit spots, some places maybe not so good to actually just appreciate the elements, appreciate the living biosphere in that kind of level one level. Um, and working with people who are often coming at, at that point with full of anxiety, you know, I I want to fix something. I really want to fix the world. 
um, and to to hold them with that. And then is then as they move into that, they move into the relationship. Um, and that relationship is what I would call the sort of the second spiral as you've gone round again. And that second spiral is where we realize that there's a dissolving between the, the, the natural and the inner, the eye and the outer. And, and that becomes much more where the relationship um, and the emotions and the, and the power of the myth and the depth of time going forward as well as backwards really, really uh, means something. But in a way, that's a lot where where um, sort of ecotherapy can can pause, where we work with, and I do it too. Sometimes I just need to go for a walk. Sometimes I just need to go, just just stand by a tree, and root. So that's my own therapy for for that first level. And then sometimes it's the sort of the deeper immersion, which might be sleeping overnight outside, or um, you know, working therapeutically ritually making a mandala um you know working in a uh, in a more um relationship kind of way but then there's this this sort of third but you have to go through the one two to get to the third which is this almost like a dissolving where i think you know uh chief ruben mentioned in ceremony um that women you know that dissolving when we when we're giving birth when we are absolutely beyond that place um, where we think um, there's a, a transactional relationship um, going on between me as a human being and my outside space. Um, that is also ecotherapy, but it is the dissolving. And I think I've come to the point now where that I I would be absolutely honest and say that's my focus of everything that I do. Um, I, I, I run courses, as you said, for the Tariki Trust um, in ecotherapy training. Um, I'm doing a PhD in archaeotherapy because my first degrees were in uh, archaeology. Um, well, my first degree was archaeology. My second degree was green economy. So I was trying to be all economic about it all and thinking about how to fix things in that kind of, you know, capitalist, neo-capitalist paradigm. But realizing then very quickly that actually the, the answer is in the fact that we're screwing up the land and our ancestors were holding these PowerPoints, these desperately incredible, pure, sacred spaces. Um, and so I've come, you know, full circle to realize that it's actually through connecting people to those sacred places that really matters. And I'm not sure how much time I know I've, I've got very little time. So I, I just wanted to share a photo or two of of a place um in uh can you see that no that's not the right one uh let me just try again um that should you should be able to see that oh i tell you why because i've got it on my screen here can you see oh i've got sorry i'm confusing myself because i've got did you see the powerpoint there um we're seeing a little strip at the top uh with the white and red on top of that. Ah. The first time round we saw a PowerPoint. Now now ah. we've just got a bit of uh, right. now now it, you have still have some slides, so well I tell you what, it's um, just it's just photographs, but it'll just help you frame what what my work really is doing in terms of speaking for the land and and my work 
merges where humans and land become one, where we've got rid of this, this unhelpful dichotomy where humans and nature don't exist and that that sort of animist relational uh, interaction has disappeared. When, when I work with at-risk heritage sites, ancient and ancient or not so ancient, what what and I work with people and I and I help them through a, fro, a fro process called attending to place, um, where they go to a place um, and then they go through a, a process of of interacting, falling into relationship with this place. Um, some extraordinary things can occur for the human for the human participant as well as that land um and just uh, again please tell me how much time i've got but essentially that person five minutes just real quick five. so see you're good you're good okay so essentially that land is becomes really present for that person and so the person and the land i just step out of the way at that point and the person and the land have a direct animist a uh, relationship, a therapeutic relationship, or a, a relationship where the the the, the wounded land that that human-made changed landscape speaks to the participant, and then the participant in turn feels senses uh, like uh, a responsibility, senses like um, feeling empathic moments. Oh, I saw somebody just throw something out the window at that place and it really made me feel like this and I want to protect so there's protection and energy coming in as well and it's just an extraordinary uh process um so so yeah um and then uh just finally that that's the work that I do on the land and that's the work that I do with with the ecotherapy um but with obod um yeah mentoring with obod but but I'm hosting a deep listening circle for people and it was called initially it was called the uh climate uh climate deep listening circle but we've opened it up just a little bit and broadened it to the building resilience in difficult times deep listening circle um, and that's really because people were coming with these very visceral direct experiences of activism of um, their local environment being damaged in some way and feeling very much david and goliath energy coming where they had nothing you know very very difficult experiences with, with you know corporations and then we realized that people are actually needing a sense of of resourcing um as for themselves you know for emotional and community support um so that they can then go and do what it is that's in their heart in their in their spirit in their direct sacred action to do so we've found that we don't really talk as much about the the problems on the land, the sacred activism itself, but we really hold the individuals in a in a way that helps them feel um, that they're just listened to, that they're actually understood, um, and that people have like but not the same experiences themselves. Um, and what obviously because we are just a global community that are doing this now we're hearing about people as they feel the world um in the complexities that they experience it in all sorts of places and it has become a really beautiful community um so yeah i think i'll kind of stop there um Harry, really 
Thank you. That was really, really <laughs> wonderful to hear. Wonderful to hear. If we could, um, if, if participants could start putting um, questions into the chat, that'd be great. Um, and, and hopefully we'll get a, a question or two for you. Um, uh, you said right at the start, who speaks for the land? Mm. And, and that kind of resonated massively with me. Um, uh, I, I, in one of my other roles, I'm a, a councillor, local politician, and I tried to get the rights of nature enshrined into the council's um, uh, uh, constitution. I failed. I'm going to try again. I'm going to. I'm, I will get there. But, but you know, we wanted to try and get this voice of nature within um, within decision making. Um, how else might we? You know, who speaks for the land? How else might we speak for the land? I suppose is my question to you. Well, it depends where you are, I think, um, in, in the world. Um, and speaking for the land can be um, in the way that you um, uh, you yourself relate to the land. So it's not exploitative. It's not transactional. Um, so you can start with your very own um, listening to the land. And by that, you can go and have a, a, a place that before you even enter it, you ask a simple question, is it okay if I come and spend some time with you you know and really hear feel sense whatever it is um I mean we're getting into sort of like practices of how to actually feel hear you know an animist uh being um or you know a, a space speaking but there's that sort of thing of being ready to ask permission um I think if you if you aren't so used to listening to the land it is easy to sort of think that we know best um, and I don't mean that on the individual level per se I mean collectively culturally we say this has to be done this has to be done um, and we know best um, so you have to we I think it's just about checking in and just saying is that right is that just a piece of received information but what does the land say and then if you do feel or dream or you know synchronicities come in or you learn bird language or anything like that that tells you something that's not what the council tells you that the land wants to be developed or, you know, something like that, really hear it. And I think people like you, Stuart, who are councillors are the people to find, you know, so that we all actually feel like we've got a bit of a, um, uh, you know, officialdom on our side as well, because, because I think that that is, is a really helpful avenue. Um, I think fi just finally, it's about just, yeah, listen, being prepared to listen and being prepared to have a no if, if the land is wounded. I, I do a lot of work with a charity called Radical Joy for Hard Times, by the way, and we work deliberately with wounded landscapes, which are, you know, fracking pads, uh, mine, coal mines, uh, places of atrocities, uh, polluted rivers and things. And so you actually find that even after 20 years of, you know, the, the landscape being rewilded, that they're, they're actually grounded on very, very toxic land that has not had a healing of any sort, let alone ritual healing. It's actually still toxic land. And so you will actually perhaps find that that, that communication is complex. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff. Um, Thank you. Thank you. We've got a couple of questions um, asking for um, sort yes. of contact details and uh, your websites and yeah. so forth. So if we could pop those into the chat, that'd be great. I will. Yeah. I can Marie. pop those in for you, Harriet. Thank Fantastic. you. Thanks, Cynthia. Marie, did That's you want to come in? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, 
and and I'm, I'll bring Patricia in after this sometime. Uh, but what you're talking about is probably one of the most important subjects because this is what I'm finding is that it's the disconnect of being in relationship to the land that is getting us to abuse it because we're not seeing a relationship with it. We don't feel in communication. We don't feel. So instead, we we uh, uh, get this usury kind of relationship where it's something for us to use as a an object or something. And, and as you bring people out there to the land to have that connection, then it really generates their sense of being in tune, uh, having, you, you're not going to abuse your mother uh, if you feel that they're your mother, but if you're thinking of it as an object, uh, you might tend to think, well, it's for, I can do whatever I want with it. And so to me, what you're saying and, and what Patricia uh, might be talking about later in the indigenous perspective um, is to know that these words, when we say, oh, we are one and all this kind of thing, is to instead feel it and to bring that into your being state. And, and so I wanted to see if you wanted to say anything about that. Mm. And yeah, thank you for, for just reflecting that back. It is, it's about the, the talk, like when we say walking the walk, you know, it's, it's so evocative of people who would say phrases that just haven't percolated down into the soul, into the cells, into the moment where you're actually walking the land and realizing that you're breathing in land and the land is breathing in you and holding you and that you're both experiencing gravity. I mean, just there's such a collaborative communicative aspect of everything. Um, and yeah, but I don't, I think this is where the ecotherapy spirals or druidic esoteric spirals become so critical and that we have to be kind to ourselves because sometimes just that, that moment where we realize that we've dissolved for want of a better word into something that's not non-transactional, that's just really belonging can be so enormous, um, you know, that, that it's, uh, it's, it's easy to shut the doors again, especially when we have to be very compassionate with people about whose, whose work might be quite, you know, disruptive. It might be that they, they work, uh, you know, my cousin, my, I shouldn't say, but uh, you know, I know someone who's a geologist who is absolutely loved the earth. That was why he wanted to do geology and he got snapped up by a, water bottling company you know and uh it, it's those sort of sorrows really that where it's that sort of you we get skewed into a direction that is much more transactional and um exploitative and it's about being very gentle with people um and and recognizing that that their will may be there but the means to get to feel that um takes tender care i think Thank you. I'll just I've got I have literally very small um, PowerPoints, but I will send them to you to to send to people if in the future, if anybody's interested. OK, fantastic. That's superb. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And you. another point you made, too, about and I, that's why I'm going to bring uh, Patricia in at this uh, after this sometime. Uh, and and what I would like Patricia to actually address is that if you come from a colonialist mindset or 
um, you come from a place of fixing something, and this is what you were talking about, really, come from a place of fixing something, but you're in a mindset that doesn't understand that relational mindset or heart set, then, then what you're doing a lot of times is putting a bandage on a wound or not. And, th and, this, and this has to do with permaculture too. You're not understanding how nature works, how natural rhythm works and what your natural rhythm is and what, how, how you would function in that natural rhythm. And if you don't have that, if you're just functioning, trying to fix something from a point of view where you're just in your mind or you're, um, you're not feeling deeply into that new rhythm, the rhythm of your true nature, then, then you can't come from a place that really addresses where your sacred dream is. And so that's what I'm really hearing what uh, you say. And, um, and I know that uh, that's a favorite topic of mine and Patricia's. <laughs> and uh, does anybody want to ask any more questions in the chat, you know, on this amazing subject before we go to Patricia? So thank you for having me anyway. It was uh, great to be here and chat with you. Oh, thank you so much, Harriet. Um, thank you. How about if we bring Grandmother Patricia in? And uh, Yeah, let's do that. And uh, Patricia, if you could sort of start to, um, you're not going to maybe have as much time as some of the others because we're bringing you on as an extra added bonus, but <laughs> um, I love you so much. Everybody in here is rocking it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mari and Stuart. You, you mentioned that time is short to make corrections to climate change and to global warming and ask the questions how to help people come to learn to connect with spirit and how do we accept it. And so um, I would like to um, spontaneously um, speak to that. So um, first of all, after 76 years of practicing not getting old, I lost a tooth last week. It couldn't be saved. And I'm going through an identity crisis now. So um, I, want, I want to mention that um, most of all, greetings to everyone and your participation. This is that we're in a world uh, global crisis. So um, everyone, that is uh, my spiritual family and relatives. Adone, um, born of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw or the Tachi'i and the Kia'ani of the Dene, which um, commonly known as the Navajo people. And I'm an international educator, a traditional healer. I'm a diagnostician and practitioner and the gift that I was born with, we call it Tienleh. It's from Dinepazad and that's our sacred language and our sacred words of the holy people. And inclusively all of our primordial ancestors are 
the holy people. I was initiated by my late father um, when I was um, eight years old. And um, his name was Anselm G. Davis, George Davis of Look Atupai, Arizona. Now, um, this was a time when our language and our culture and our ceremonies were illegal. And not only were they illegal, we had to hide even particularly, especially on our own, reserv quote, reservation, the Navajo Nation, the Nepa and the Nepikea. These are uh, referring to the sacred land uh, in which we, uh, Hajine is a place of our emergence onto the landscape. And so um, I would like to speak to uh, the art of making distinction between the non-Septian, uh, non-Septian is the holy plant people. And so when we say the yin azebenahaga, we're talking about the plant, the holy plant people that um, that uh, provide um, a medicine for uh, a, a healthy way of life and it connotates plenitude, especially wealth. Our health is our wealth concept. And then um, the, the, the term uh, drugs in the um, Western society is uh, a chemically based that does, that does not um, really contribute to our um, healing. It's more of a coping, just making that distinction here. And then, um, oh, by the way, Mari, um, oak itself, I'm gonna say, it's a little hard to say, So oak is used in all of our ceremonies. And um, however, our tree, our quote, tree of life is the, is corn. And then um, I want to um, just say that um, there are uh, three belief systems which are Abrahamic. They are religion, Islam, and um, Judaism. And so then there are interspiritual, and then there's people in the interspiritual, and then and then there are secular humanitarians. And so then when we are talking about um, nature spirituality, um, Dana speaking about nature spirituality, all of these years I've been trying to think and understand what is the English term or word that is appropriate for my domain. The domain is really in the laws of nature, which is not, not any of these categories. However, it, it is an overarching domain. And so um, perhaps um, natural order law spirituality, perhaps that's what it is. That's a long-term natural order law governs all of us equally. It's, it's cross-cultural. It's intergenerational. It is um, also, it, it's inclusive. There's no competing collectivities representing competing, competing ideologies in our word, of the all-encompassing all concept of holiness with H and wholeness with W in this oneness of the natural order laws that govern us. And then it can be translated into any English. So you all might help me come up with 
what I just say to people in English that I'm a systems level um, person, systems level change. And that reframe from uh, the usury uh, relationship that Ari was speaking about to be to becoming the steward. Well, it's already it's already in the context container of the nephazad, which is the language itself, is is that we exist, all of us equally, everyone exists in this natural order because our body is the earth. We are 70, let's see, earth is um 12%, water is 72%, fire 4%, and air is 6%. And then this uh, web of life and the interconnected um, etheric network, we might say, say we're, we're calling that ina. Sanskrit calls it akha. What holds us together in this interrelationship and interconnectedness? And so specifically to, to just simplify the, the um, internalize, remember and reawaken and internalize our, our very breath, the in-breath and out-breath is reminding and, and actual, actualizing that we're, we cannot exist outside of or separate from nature. Therefore, those who believe they, they do are the ones destroying themselves and everyone else. And so, um, this um, teaching here that uh, when we say indigenous people, we're really we're really talking about intention. There's only two intentions. Only two. That is, I win and you lose, and winner take all. And I'll justify uh, that uh, I need from you, and only me and my people can benefit by it. That is a win-lose, nobody wins, and it's death-producing decision for those outcomes that we're witnessing today. So in that, in that sense, with this war in, in our in our on our mother earth, Nahasan Hima, that is talking about the living spirit of an actual mother, the earth element itself that's our body. And then which is the water is sacred medicine and so on. And the origin and the fire of life and our temperature. And this is the sacred air of peace and love of creator. So at a practical level, our medicine, my, my late father was very knowledgeable, recognized, um, respected um, person who um, took care of people his own. And I witnessed at least three generations of my lifetime. So our, our authentic medicine people, my teachers were of my father's lineage and his grandfather's lineage, the, the Tachi. Uh, actually, it's Ye'i. Actually, it's Ye'i Dene Tachi and then the Kia'ani. So they tell us, do not fire anything into the air on New Year's Eve, like guns and things like that. 
do not like Fourth of July. Think about it. That's air in your very life. It's in breath, out breath. Putting 21 gun salute. Why isn't it we can't breathe? So that's the most practical, practical thing I can say. And, and then um, two or three things. Um, the, the ceremonial way of life is to name what is out of balance and then identify the root cause of what is out of balance. And so when we do that, have to empty out, have to cleanse, purify, what is the, make the corrections and say, um, creator, I forgot who I am. I made a mistake. Make room for me while I correct myself. These are how the language goes so that there's no blame. There's no healing and blaming and, and healing is for everyone. So then we have group senses and everybody does their part from their ingenious, from their spark of divinity, from their inherent sovereignty with creator within creation simultaneously and their inherent gift serve in the world by making the, the decision for the greatest good for the greatest number of people. That's simply hojo. And then uh, if we if we do not choose that, we're calling that hojo, that word here even destructive and death producing. And we have to discern. And and when we do a self-assessment, self-evaluation, discern. Life is simple, yes and no. And guess what, people? It's all existing within us. We're, it's built within us. This decision-making process, whole brain thinking, conscience and moral reasoning is ethosin. Um, though in Sahakes, actually the word um, alila in Sahakes, that is like in my holy thinking, in my clear and congruent thinking, and the miracle power that goes with it. So I hope that um, yeah. short and um, <clears throat> fits into the template of the topic today. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. I wanted to elaborate on that just a little bit because Patricia was saying that we ourselves are earth, water, fire, and air. We have fire inside of us as, uh, to digest our food. We have, uh, we have water inside of us. We have, so, so as we start understanding, we have the in-breath. We, we are the element of air. Um, we're not disconnected from this. So as we get in tune with this very nature that we are, like Patricia is talking about, then um, we start understanding that we are responsible for the nature of ourselves and all of the planet because it is part of us. The planet affects our body. You know, we pollute the planet, we pollute our body, we eat toxic food, we, you know, so all these things cannot be divided among themselves. That we cannot compartmentalizing think compartmentalize thinking that we are a separate being. And in that, it brings about 
the understanding and the feeling of the, um, uh, what would you say, the cycle within that is actually present in our being. And um, so that's what uh, Patricia, my synopsis is of what Patricia was actually sharing. And in that, um, as Patricia was talking about it, we can then make proper decisions based on the fact that we understand this relationship. And, and what does it say? say we can then evaluate with a simple yes or no um, all those decisions on whether they are actually good for ourselves and and we're going to bring Steve Breedlove in really soon and he speaks on permaculture and that is really uh, the basis for permaculture is to observe what the actuality of the living organism is and how it best um, takes care of itself, how it best stays in harmony with itself. And, and so when, you, when you're observing that land and you can see like water runs downhill, that's a natural thing. So if you work with that, that idea that water runs downhill, then you can you, you don't try to necessarily pump it up you you let it do its natural thing and and subscribe mm. your your the things that you work with as solutions to work with the natural ways that that water as an example yeah. works so yeah patricia this one more thing i wanted to mention i was hoping that ruben would be would stay and listen to what I had to say too, because um, I also went to um, Indian boarding school at 12 years old. And uh, that's where um, I was told that um, all of our our language and culture and our ceremony were, um, were witchcraft and that we were all going to hell. So that's how much damage that has been done to so many generations in the four phases of uh, conquest. And I won't go into those four phases, but boarding school and relocation is is the third phase, and and that is where there is loss of just loss, self negation, self self betrayal, self effacement, all the way to suicide, self destruction, and so on, because that's intergenerational, transgenerational, unresolved anger uh, upon those in proximity. And so that loss then is the root cause of alcohol and drug um, anywhere and everywhere in the world. So out there, thank you. However, I was initiated into um, my father's um, traditional ceremonial ways and I was extremely battered and discredited practically my whole Thank you both just spontaneously. Sometimes we find that, yes, truth tellers, um, when they're misunderstood and they challenge uh, the status quo can be greeted with animosity. And um, the thing is, how, how do we start softening those bonds um, that the other people are, um, finding threat in and um, these are big questions that we can ask ourselves and how can we love be a big enough love to incorporate that in and 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 nonviolent communication really is 
um, something that's very helpful in that besides all the spiritual work we're doing. So if anyone has any questions for Grandmother Patricia, now's the time to put them into the chat. Absolutely. What's really lovely about us all speaking together today is just really hearing each other and, and sharing so many deep things and, and bouncing off each other and then letting it deepen our own practice. And, and I think as we create more forums for that to really start taking hold, that we'll really start be, being able to um, find uh, the line to pursue the, 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 the way, you know, just in this beauty of inquiry. And, and like uh, Harriet said, the beauty of inquiring in the land, because th that, that requires not being um, self-satisfied, but also thinking, you know, that doesn't allow you to grow. It doesn't allow you to get to the next level, level of being. Um, it's, it's, um, being a person that kind of is willing to sidestep their knowing and, and just open up to the bigger picture and, and source, you know, kind of brings the question, okay, where am I to go next? So does any, is anyone saying anything that they want? Just a, re just a reminder that um, I'm describing and illustrating and defining from this uh, ceremonial language. It's not from conversational language. It's tribal language. It's not from the Navajo language. It's from the Nehbazad, the ceremonial esoteric language. And so English is a money and finance and a commerce language, and it's abstract. And so um, just be that's just a making a distinction of then why we're pitted against one another because it's a dualistic language and the how-to is is to navigate that double bind, the mutually exclusive message, mutually incongruent message um, to bring people to a group consensus to design the co-creative solutions with creator, within creation with and with each other, that power within to have power with each other to eliminate the power over conquest, brute force and deception of these pipelines that um, are still wanting to run over all of us. Yeah, you were saying also with uh, language, the indigenous people, most of their languages didn't originally um, hold ideas of self and other as being other than, like, like uh, what's the expression you say, Patricia? You know, in our language, there's, there's everyone, all my relations, there is no self and other, therefore you become the enemy. We're all in this together. And that makes me actually cry. But um, in that understanding, we have a life view of that. And when you hold that as a life view, you don't look at your brother or sister in the same way as in as something to be gotten something from, take from, uh, um, instead, you say, "How do we do this together? How do we, how do we create this sacred energy together?" And somebody's asking, um, "Would Grandmother Patricia be willing to speak a little on the delicate issue of partnering with Indigenous people and not having difficulties uh, with appropriation?" Uh, yeah, it's 
there's so much pain that this this does become it can become an issue and um and i think that if i'm just going to say something real quick before i give that to patricia is if we are humble enough to actually say hey i'm really uncomfortable with this subject and i really want to make something good and i know that it might not be interpreted correctly but my heart is in it so much and and this can happen with all races you know I really want to hear your opinion. I want to hear your come from. I, I want to learn about you. I, I want to experience you and not take it for granted. How many people in this room have very deep relationships with Black people, Hispanic people, to the point where they can share their soul? And so um, a lot of what I do with Ancestors of the Four Directions is part and parcel of that as well as what we're doing here with Order of the Oak. But go ahead, Patricia. Well, enemy creation means to project the war within, where there's no correction of peacemaking with creator within creation and then with each other. That's what it takes. So that enemy creation is I have to devalue someone and dehumanize someone. And and then to um to, to make those decisions in which um, I'm going to benefit, but not you. So how to make, how to, how to, first of all, you have to establish rapport before you can have trust. And thus far, um, uh, there was a, um, a European and Navajo person by Mark Charles who said, we're using the word reconciliation that we don't have a common memory, so we can't re reconciliate. So that means that when we we befriend someone, then we're not um, without. When they say without a appropriating, well, in the first place, your intention is, I win and you win. And that's constructive and life affirming. So that's my intention. Thinking, my speaking, my action, my decision making is going to be congruent. And with that spirit within of number one, earth, the holy earth surface people, which is the holy five finger people. Now, when I said that in English, nobody was left out. So consider yourself that you're, that we're human. In English, humane is humane with an E, humane beings. So as a humane being, our whole repertoire is going to be congruent with, I'm not here to take advantage of you or exploit you. You don't even have to say that. You're already with that intention. And so it's it's going to take um, focus on your own intention, and you're going to find that that racism, where is um, I have to control the world and manip manipulate the world resources because of my fear. Just understand that fear is a call for you, and peace is a call for guilt, and scarcity is a call for abundance. So our intention then we put that into action and we make decision yes or no. And I hope that's practical 
because I'm giving you the mechanics practical for your uh, your application and your personal life and your community life, your professional life. And that is put, let's put our intention to our um, global network global governments as well. Not governments, global governing systems to correct themselves accordingly the way that we're intending today. Wonderful. Um, somebody asked about the, the language you were speaking in, uh, Danette Hazad. Um, and and we'll be bringing Patricia on for other summits so she can go more deeply into different topics. But um, thank you, Patricia. And I don't see any other questions particularly immediately. So I'd like to hand off to Stuart and Steve. Excellent. Thank, thank you, Marie. And uh, thank you, Patricia. Um, right, uh, I'm going to introduce Steve Breedlove, who's a um, member of Star Starhawks Permaculture Team. Um, apparently, Steve's a father, gardener, veteran, and community organizer. You've got half an acre in uh, California's Central Valley, which um, uh, designing resilience for, for for a changing world. You do permaculture design, um, and you're a student in the Earth Activist Training Regenerative Land management program so you are the perfect person to tell us how to save the planet <laughs> um hello and thank you so much for having me um i wouldn't go so far to say i'm the perfect person to explain that um i'm actually quite humbled um and admittedly a bit intimidated being in this space with uh, such wisdom um and uh, so many varied experiences um, that inform how we kind of approach this work and this question um, if I may, I was going to share a slideshow and try and work through that over the next six or eight minutes, if that's okay. Go for it. You can share your screen. Excellent. All right. I think um, Archdruid O'Driscoll mentioned that she kind of does permaculture and the spirit path um, together. And I, I'm kind of a permaculture and radical politics kind of person myself. I come out of the left political space and most of my awakening about the world and uh, the problems we face and potential solutions to those problems is informed by my politics. So um, let me put this on full screen. Okay. All right. Resistance is fertile. And I do believe that. Um, first, I'm a uh, Earth Activist Training is a 501c3 educational nonprofit founded in 2000. Um, that attempts to link regenerative ecological design, uh, education, and social justice activism. I am a student in their two-year regenerative land management program, and I help co-teach the permaculture design certificate uh, in entry program. Um, and I got my design certificate in 2017 and kind of came into this space in 2011, having attended a couple uh, peak oil conferences. Um, first, a land acknowledgement. I'm on the traditional lands of the Machupta Maidu in Northern California. That slide background is the Butte Creek Canyon. Butte Creek was super important to the Machupta and their lifeway. Um, and it remains one of the only intact salmon runs on the West Coast of the United States. They were a salmon and acorn people. Um, and then I had a discussion, and I'm constantly dealing with this question about how to acknowledge land. And I had an inf interesting conversation with a Tacoma organizer and land steward 
Um, and so I put this together that we are organisms, that we belong to a community of life. Our, our existence is a gift that only the land gives. And our spiritual task is to resist that which destroys and to repair what has been broken. And that's uh, both materially in the physical environment, but also uh, psycho-spiritually. Uh, what is permaculture? Permaculture came out of the kind of general Western environmental movement. We had Silent Spring and the Earthrise photo, the limits to growth, many of you are probably familiar with, um, in 72 and the oil embargo the following year. Um, Bill Mollison and um, uh, um, Holmgren, um, David Holmgren, were Australian or uh, New Zealanders, and they kind of brought applied ecology um into the environmental discussion permaculture is a syncretic discipline uh, so it kind of borrows from a bunch of different things and it's none of those things at once um including applied ecology re uh, regenerative agriculture also draws heavily from uh peasant and folkways recognizing that human beings that have existed in uh biomes or environments uh for many generations have a knowledge of that land base and a set of tools and skills to um, extract their sustenance from that landscape or rather cultivate their sustenance in that landscape. Um, and so we draw from those folkways. It also incorporates political economic theory, eco-social and feminist theory. Um, and at once permaculture is relational and scientific. It's not entirely relational and it's not entirely scientific. Um, it kind of straddles that lane. Um, and here on the left is from Holmgren's uh, book, uh, Pathways Beyond Sustainability. And you can kind of see how all sorts of things that we talk about in the sustainability space are all kind of encompassed in permaculture. It's kind of like a, um, I kind of conceive of it as like an umbrella for all of these things um, within a coherent design methodology. Permaculture is a uh, set of principles and ethics, as Archdrew O'Driscoll, O'Driscoll said. Um, it's also an analytical design, me um, design methodology. Sorry, I'm a bit nervous. Um, it's also a set of tools and techniques and it's a global community of practice. Um, earth care, people care, fair shares. I really like that uh, Archdruid added uh, spirit aware. Um, I'm, I might have to pick up her book and, and kind of learn more about that and how to incorporate it into my teaching and my own practice. Um, and around this circle are uh, 12 principles uh, derived from Holmgren that we use to analyze spaces and consider um, relationships between elements. Um, and it in, informs our design process. Um, there's a bunch of different um, methods that we use on this screen. It's just kind of a smash up. We use mapping, zone and sector analysis, uh, Yeoman scale of permanence, among others, to kind of help us. Um, in the top right is a uh, needs and yields analysis. These are just tools we use to make good decisions and to make connections, recognizing that the earth is a living thing and it's a system and everything is related to everything else. And so this just helps us make sense of how things are related so that we can facilitate connections. Tools and techniques, there's many of them. Swales are a common one a lot of people know. Contour planting, interplanting, uh, guilds, polycultures, um, net and basin here in the middle um, for water catchment and storage so that we can make our landscapes resilient to drought um, and reduce our dependence on groundwater pumping and uh, taking from surface streams that serve important environmental functions for fisheries and wetlands. Uh, more tools and techniques, we use guilds. Uh, food forest is just a, a, a patterned guild at scale. 
Um, we also use passive design um, in our buildings and, you know, lasagna garden is a classic one there on the bottom right. Uh, permaculture is also a global community of practice, and I think this is where permaculture gets most of its strength. As I mentioned before, it draws from every tradition it can draw from and recognizes that humans that occupy spaces and, and steward land are the ones who are best equipped to show us Westerners, folks from industrial uh, developed um, um, states, um, how we should be structuring the systems that supply our well-being, um, our food system, our water, clean air, et cetera. And these folks know how to manage that land because they've done it for generations in place. Here on the screen, I have a milpa system, which is indigenous Mexicans, um, use this kind of cyclical pattern of land management. On the bottom left is a dehesa. That is an old world uh, Iberian system of agroforestry. Uh, where they grow oaks, olives, among other things. Um, it's a dryland strategy, which uh, I think could be replicated in California at scale um, with huge ecological um, benefits, uh, both to hydrology, um, to soil carbon stores, mitigating climate change, etc. Um, also, you have Indigenous Australians on the bottom left practicing cultural burning. Most peoples practice some form of cultural burning. Um, just a kind of land uh, management uh, technique. And then uh, you kind of have these polycultures in uh, tropical agriculture here on the right. So why do we need this? And why do we need to do it at scale? Well, first of all, carbon sequestration, right? Climate change is a really big deal. I'm sure um, if most of you are like me, it gives you quite a bit of anxiety. Um, and here's just a couple graphics that show what our actual biomass stocks, this is primarily in forest and grassland soils and what the potential could be. Um, rather than spending money on hypersonic ballistic missiles and new airplanes and aircraft carriers and new bases in the Philippines to provoke China into a war, we could be using those financial resources for restoring soils, restoring forests and allowing um, ourselves the ability to supply the calories we need as organisms um, while also fostering beneficial relationships and preserving biodiversity. Here's a couple slides on land restoration and terraforming. Terraforming is something that you're like, oh, it's like, like sci-fi, right? But we can take, it's called afforestation technically, um, but it's where you can build a forest where a forest has not existed for many, many generations. Um, or over geologic time for the last many thousands or tens of thousands of years, a forest hasn't existed, but we can modify the environment through earthworks, et cetera, to um, harvest more rainwater passively and actually grow forests where forests haven't grown for a very long time. This is an example of the Greening the Desert Project in Jordan. This is at a homestead scale. Um, you can see the before and after here. Here is the Los Plateau, which was um, degraded land from earlier uh, dynastic China. And this is a more modern uh, approach of using uh, a applied ecology and scientific management to land at the landscape scale. And you can see on the, I'm not sure if you can see my cursor here, but on the, the left here, you can see the erosion gullies here. And you can see how the solution was to terrace um, obviously, terraced, uh, terracing is uh, widely used across uh, East Asia and then also in um, 
uh, um, South America in some places. And then on this picture on the bottom right, you can see that again, this kind of terracing to prevent soil from going down the hill and to help store water further in the land or further up in the landscape, which um, helps charge the, the lowlands hydrology much better. Um, and and it, it, the effects of this, this kind of um, restoration and management or terraforming um, has gigantic implications. Um, and here's another one. It's one of my favorite. This is in Saudi Arabia. I, I believe it's on the Red Sea. Um, it's called the Albeda Project. Um, and the guy who, who did this project has a company that deals with this, and they're primarily specializing in salt water aquaculture so that coastal peoples can um, utilize their landscapes um, to produce calories and also have like, you know, their economic well-being, have things to trade. Um, and Albeda is just amazing. They only irrigated this for two years. Um, and then they had to take it off irrigation because they ran out of funding and it worked because they set everything in place. And they kind of, it's basically taking e the concept of ecological succession and giving it a push in a direction and then allowing those systems to do what they do. Nature wants to create biomass. And so that's what it does if you give it the, the abiotic conditions to do so. And here's another example from the Al-Beta project. You can see these degraded landscapes, desert Saudi Arabia, um, and they're, they're facilitating the growth of grasslands, which now uh, provide fodder for um, their herd animals. Another reason we need to do this at scale globally um, this land restoration project permaculture is for biodiversity preservation. Obviously, we all know that biodiversity has suffered greatly under industrial extraction across the globe. Um, and so we need to make conscious efforts to give to those other things that we share um, our, share this planet with. Um, and there's a whole host of ways. I think, Stuart, you mentioned that you're uh, in council um, where you're at in the local government, this could be planting um, highway strips or, you know, other programs to facilitate public lands using native plants um, and other things that benefit the local insects. And the insects are obviously the primary uh, consumers. And then there's all the birds and reptiles and amphibians that follow um, and eat those as food. Um, and then you also have sustainable and development equity. A big part of Earth Activist Training's focus is on this social justice aspect and remedying the uh, consequences of colonialism and uh, ex extract industrial extraction um, in the global south. And on the bottom left, you have a constructed wetland. It's just a, a, a way to produce biomass with our waste rather than sending it off to a wastewater treatment plant. And then you have aquaculture at small scale, people growing uh, fish. I think this is a tilapia pond in Malawi, I want to say. Um, and then on the bottom right, we have uh, Cuban urban farms. Um, these are all ways to provide uh, the calories people need and provide uh, economic livelihoods um, in uh, environmentally responsible ways. And then we also have personal resilience, right? Like the uh, inflation, all these things that people are like, oh my God, they don't realize that we're, you know, on borrowed time, that an that a economy based on um, non-renewable resources cannot exist forever. And so like permaculture also offers um, a lot of personal resilience. I know for me, I have, um, and not to brag, I, I, I empathize with folks who are, are in hard times, but I have a, a lot of cushion. Um, to these kinds of rapid changes happening in our uh, political economy um, because I take responsibility for procuring at least some 
of my calories, um, medicines and uh, other things. So Earth Activist Training offers a bunch of classes in person. The address is at the top, earthactivisttraining.org. Um, and highly recommend you just check out the website, see if you want to pursue this education or even enter conversation. We have a very supportive online community using a platform called Mighty Networks, which is it's it's kind of like a, a, a Facebook-esque thing, but it's a, a curated community. So it's pretty focused on dealing with these issues. And then uh, just to, to reiterate, we're organisms and we belong to a community of life. Um, human existence is a gift that only the land gives. Um, we have to resist that which destroys, but also repair what has been broken. And I believe that permaculture and uh, regenerative land management and ecological restoration at scale is the only thing that really is going to fix a lot of these problems, uh, climate change, uh, economic insecurity, et cetera. So thank you very much for your time. And I hope that some of this was uh, useful to you. Steve, that was really, really impressive. Thank you. Um, could we open the, um, the the chat up for, for people to put some questions yeah. in? That'd be really chat great. Chat is open. Fantastic. Um, if I may, I, I, if I could start with, with a question while people are typing, I suppose. Um, you talked about eco-socialism. Um, you talked uh, and you talked about your cushion for rapid changes and and a lot of what we saw a lot of those examples were big examples except for the cuban urban farm i suppose um what, what advice have you got for people um who who don't have a lot of land i live in the middle of a town um i have people around me are mostly in flats um what advice would you have for them both to 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 um you know give themselves that cushion but also to to engage with permaculture and to um uh, to, to 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 engage with the land um okay yeah i was going to include in that personal resilience um a, a bit about um scale and how you know we it, some of our permaculture design certificate students actually produce uh, patio garden designs because we recognize not everybody has space. I don't have a lot of space and I can use it quite effectively. Um, and you could find tons of images of people on tiny little suburban postage stamps or in apartment complexes where they find a little unused corner, right, of the parking lot that gets enough sun. And then they can build the soil there um, and cultivate the soil biology and then grow a plant, even if it's just like an edible shrub, or maybe it's just a flowering shrub that that uh, um, uh, attracts the kind of bird that they're really interested in looking at, right? Like, um, and I think it's really important that like the um, one of the principles in that uh, 12 principles of permaculture design is value the marginal. And I think for a lot of people in urban areas, you see like urban farming and kinds of other things, especially like earth repair, like kind of mitigating the toxins we've loaded the soil with over the last many decades. Um, uh, there's 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 a lot of um, ways that we can find little unused spots to do this kind of work. And if you're even if it's, you know, a thousand square feet or 500 square feet. If you build good, healthy soil there, and um, uh, I think Archdruid of Driscoll was mentioning uh, milkweed seeds, if you even just gorilla plant some wildflower seeds there, it will help something. And like all of the pressure, these other um, species that we share the planet with, um, all of our brother and sister species, um, all of them are under such intense pressure. If we can provide them refugia, I think she said, um, is, is a fantastic con concept because 
We really just need to give them the chance to do what they do. We need to give as much habitat as possible, and that will help them in their resilience um, to climactic change or other kinds of um, um, disturbances. Uh, did that answer your question? I'm not sure. 10 by 50 foot is a big garden in the UK, I can tell you. I mean, even if you only have 10 feet, right? Like 10 square feet. Um, there's a question here from um, Lisa. Um, I live in an area with bedrock very close to the surface. So I'm unable to dig in most locations to create swales to control and reserve water. Would rock or even a laid log ridge laid to slow the runoff of rain, would that help with the groundwater in a similar way to swales? Um, I would, uh, in Albeda where it's, there's very little soil, right? You're basically starting at primary succession in ecological terms. So you'd better, uh, you'd probably be better served, right? In the scale of permanence too, um, we talk about like how much energy does it take to push a system? And we always kind of look for the lowest, uh, energy, lowest labor ways to do things. So your solution on very shallow soils might just be taking some of the loose rocks on the surface and stacking them on contour, as you saw in that photo of Albeda. Um, and that all that does is help water during a heavy rain, helps water that would normally sheet off the land and carry what little soil had accumulated. And it'll it'll stop that and slow it down. So it has a, a time to time to settle out those sediments and start to actually build thicker soil that first annual grasses and forbs will colonize. Colonize is a bad word. Will occupy. Um, and then uh, eventually as your soils get thicker, you'll get the kind of shrubs that can exist in those soils and so on. And succession then moves forward as it does. I don't know if that answered the question. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, question um, from Freda. Um, as an elder who lives alone on the land and who has long grown almost all my food, I'd like to suggest there are many rural people who would love to offer the opportunity for townies to come and learn. Mm -hmm. How do we create those connections? Yeah. How do you create those connections? It's like <laughs> the perennial question, right? Like humans, I don't know, in my experience, I don't want to generalize, but like it's very difficult to get people to understand. And then communication is always an issue um, because we come from different backgrounds. Um, but part of permaculture is these communicative practices. Um, in fact, there's an uh, entire uh, Starhawk leads one of the courses that's focused on social permaculture and various systems for not just structuring organizations, but also interpersonal communication. Yeah. yeah I forget the name of that. I want to say it's just called social permaculture. If you go on the website, you'll see it though. Sounds sounds absolutely fascinating. Yes, building building communities. Um, if there are local Facebook networks near a small town, you can post and create awareness. Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of permaculture guilds. I was on the board of a nonprofit that managed the local guild for a number of years, and um, we did all sorts of outreach and education and actual work. Um, because I think that's really the important part. It's like there's we're kind of, in my opinion, um, <laughs> not in the opinion of Earth Activist Training necessarily, but in my opinion. Like we're beyond the point where we need to be educating and and still discussing this these things. Like we need to act. We are out of time. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Marie, did you want to come in with uh, any questions? And there was also a question from a participant, Steve. Oh. If you could make your slides available. Sure. Yeah. That's no problem. Thank you. I mean, it's not the greatest slideshow. I'm still. A, an idea. amateur when it comes to, to <laughs> PowerPoint. That was great. 
there's a few comments I want to make uh, because I see a lot of uh, beauty in what you're talking about. Um, one was uh, just the fact of uh, needing to educate still, yes, and, and move in, but even people don't know that they should leave their the tree leaves uh, and put them into the, the earth itself rather than rake them up as an example, that, that the trees are dying because they're not being refortified with what they naturally put down into the earth. Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of a parable for that, you know, to make something pristine and looking good, maybe, you know, wearing formaldehyde on your face is an example, isn't really, you know, your natural propensity. Uh, and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, nourish you. It, maybe your natural ways are nourishing you, like the tree is nourishing itself, you know. And and one comment about that also was um, that a, a lot of uh, people are or have over the of the past um, only in uh, nurtured particular grains or foods or different things, and they've chosen things to sell. And then they don't mm -hmm. allow the nature to have all of its diversity. And that the lack of diversity is leading to crises in itself um, because uh, some of those are not drought tolerant and all sorts of things because we have been become addicted to some idea that we just want certain kinds of things. And so if we don't have big predators as an example there are going to be too many deers and then the deers are going to eat all the trees and then so we end up with a problem from thinking that we can pick and choose what nature is giving us and um in that uh as an example beavers um which seems to be my favorite topic immediately when you reintroduce beavers to streams, then things start greening all around because they build certain kinds of structures that allow uh, water to actually flow and and not dr not having droughts. And they'll build structures, and then it'll get greener and greener and greener and greener. And suddenly, the uh, um, everything has transformed. So when you put back what is natural, what is real, what is supposed to be there, um, and, and not have your agenda just to get, um, uh, you know, make as much money as possible uh, and protect every sheep, you're, you're putting back the wolves, you're putting back different things, then you start seeing that this all works together and you will be taken care of too. So I, I don't know if you want to comment about any of this, but... Uh, yeah, there's a there's a major component of permaculture that's just about rewilding. Um, a lot of it is based around like human impact because your food comes from somewhere, right? And like you, we can either get our food from in a way that like um, uh, facilitates ecosystem function, or we can go buy it from an industrial monocrop, right? But yes, uh, someone mentioned earlier about the, the permaculture zones. If y'all are not familiar with it, it's just another way of looking at scale and energy inputs, et cetera. And so you would in a perfect world in my ecotopia, right? Like we, we would have large sections which are entirely left alone once we've done the repair work for that ecosystem to function under its you know um, conditions, obviously, ecosystems change the planet changes right earth is moving all the time um but to put it back in a way where it was pre-colonization or pre-industrial extraction 
and then allow large swaths of land to just be, and we might still go hunt the elk or hunt the antelope and participate in that system, but it's going to be much more hands-off, whereas closer to where you live and your human habitat, you will have much more intensive systems that require more work, uh, like more of your human labor, and are much, uh, uh, much denser in their design versus the kind of broad acre stuff. That's why I like the Dehesa system so much. Like I tried to buy land here locally, a hundred acres and I, I got outbid. It's okay. But just to have like an Oak woodland and you manage the grass underneath using animals and stuff. Well, guess what? Like the deer will find that place, uh, um, um, a nice place to get a meal, right? Like if you restore the grassland, even if you're using that grassland for your domesticated livestock, like other animals can still use it right versus our system now which is you leave the cattle on a piece of land until it looks like a moonscape right and then it's not useful for anything but if you're using rotational grazing and other management um, techniques then you'll find that you're increasing the overall primary production of the ecosystem and that provides enough for you and for everything else and then again, there is that kind of self-regulation mechanism in the, uh, the, the, the third ethic of fair shares, right? You might recognize like, hey, I really think I could probably squeeze another few pounds out of my cattle if I graze them on there. But I saw um, some, some does with fawns up, you know, um, um, they bred or uh, gave birth in the woodlot up above and they're feeding, they're, they're just coming out and eating for the first time. I'm going to leave the cattle off that so they have enough to get their strength um, as, as young deer and, and be able to utilize that landscape as well for their own. Yes, thinking, thinking more holistically and how right. we can at everything. It's mm -hmm. phenomenal. Did, is there another question that came up? Um, I think- no, I don't think okay. so. There's a there's a nice comment about um, beavers, um, and uh, certainly in the UK, I think the the people who look after the rivers are starting to realise the, the the power of the beaver in in in, in protecting and reducing flooding, um, which uh, right. certainly we suffer with dreadfully here um, by hold, holding back the water, not letting it just rush through. Yeah, and, and on that real quick, the, the political um, side of it is, is that if we manage landscapes in a way that bolsters e uh, ecological function, it's actually less expensive. So when it comes to like, oh, how do we fund this? It's cheaper to have a functional hydrology that, that puts water into the ground and into the, the groundwater table than it is to, you know, have concrete culverts everywhere to manage stormwater, right? Like, it would use less energy and less financial resources, which money as a repre representation of energy, right? Um, it would use less of that if we just made more intelligent design decisions in our human habitats. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the, there's a final comment about um, wolves. Uh, I must say, I'm very jealous that you've probably got wolves in, in your country. We. The only wolves we've got are in zoos here, which is very sad. But um, they are nowhere near where I'm at. We have coyotes are probably our our and uh, mountain cats are our primary uh, predator, um, top tier predators. Fantastic. And humans, of course. Humans are voracious. <laughs> Unfortunately. I to comment about um, you know the fact this monocropping thing um, uh -huh. and and. 
basically looking to other people to create, create and grow our food kind of puts you into a subconscious uh, fear zone because then you know that if the blank hits the fan, excuse my language, um, that you don't really have the ability to know how to do anything. And, and I, I can't even uh, begin to think that our, our subconscious is not fearful on some level that we are so dependent on things coming from uh, far away. And instead, if we started to cultivate um, even our own gardens instead of lawns, you know, uh, you know, lawns have their place, but our own gardens, our own, um, uh, you know, giving ourselves uh, something subconsciously that feels like we're taken care of or that we can be okay, that we start addressing and um, a need to be able to really relax a little bit more. And uh, I, I think that some sometimes maybe to think of even getting land together as groups, you know, um, and start thinking, how can we do this together if we can't afford all this? Um, what kinds of projects can we do? And, and talking to each other and forming those alliances. Yeah, definitely. Um, cooperative financing is also fits within the umbrella of permaculture. And it's a, it's a big thing. And if you happen to have land or your parents die and leave you land and you find you can't management, get other people or consider, um, you know, contacting the local, uh, uh, local indigenous folks and, and consider gifting it back, um, for, so they can manage it and use it for their, uh, you know, their medicines, et cetera, so forth. Yeah. I think along that line, um, when you do go back to the land, you get an empowerment of knowing how to start making your medicines, how to start, um, you know, how to even make baskets or anything. Not that we have to go all the way back or not, but but there must be there must be a feeling of empowerment that comes with being able to take care of business no matter what happens. Yeah, the, the resiliency aspect is really what drew me to it. Because like I, I said at the beginning, I, I came into this in about 2011, read a bunch of stuff. Obviously, the financial crisis shaped my life because I graduated by, um, with an undergraduate degree like three months before Lehman Brothers collapsed, right? Like, And and so I was looking at zero prospects, right? Um, and so that's how I wound up in the, in the uh, military as a poverty draftee. And something something to do to pay the bills, right? And then I I went to some peak oil conferences and started reading a bunch. And then I was like, oh my God, like I gotta do something because like this is not going to provide um everything. I need to be more connected to it and, and take more responsibility too, right? Like that's a big part of it. And so that that's how I wound up here. Yeah. Wow, brilliant. There's a there's a comment there from from Lisa around um that most people don't care or even think about where the food comes from. I was talking to uh, starting a podcast and, uh, and we interviewed a, a person who set up a, a charity working with traumatized children on, on farms, uh, on their farm they've, they've developed. And, uh, and, and these, these kids didn't believe that the potatoes they were digging up 
actually grew in the soil they, they, they were convinced that um the, the the people had planted whole potatoes bought, bought them from the supermarket and planted them beforehand um just to just to try and prove a point you know it's it's really quite scary um that that complete um lack of connection um and understanding yeah, but I think I think what's happening now with the inflation, especially, but also geopolitical instability, the energy crisis in Europe, uh, which you know I'm probably preaching to the choir because I, I I'm de- somewhat detached from it. But like these kinds of um, um, systemic uh, uh, rumblings, I guess you could say, I think more people are are open to it, and and so then it comes to communication, that cross cultural communication, even if it's just. Uh, political ideological differences is like how do you communicate okay you can leave out the we're doing this because it's important to restore the earth and provide for other creatures or you can say hey we can do this and it doesn't matter what happens outside you'll have some kind of security by provisioning your own needs i can help you design an efficient system for your suburban backyard that will help kind of provide a cushion to these things that we really have no control over. Um, And it's just then how you frame it, right? Like I know in my mind, by virtue of them growing more food, they're cutting their food miles, right? And they're reducing um, uh, fossil fuel consumption in aggregate, right? Or they're providing now um, plants for um, insects uh, that, that that eat pollen um, and other creatures, right? Like I know in my mind, it's good for the planet that they do this, but they just need to think about their home economics. And so it, it, and you, you know, it's it's a difficult thing. I'm not pretending I'm an expert by any means, but um, yeah, it, it's difficult to communicate. But I do think that there is a willingness and an uh, opportunity to reach folks who would normally not care where their food comes from. But now, when they do go to the store and they're like, ten dollars for a dozen eggs, like my God!" And you're like, "Oh, you have four thousand square foot suburban lot? Do you know you can get some chickens?" <laughs> right? Like, so it's just kind of how you approach it, I guess. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that's like uh, what we were talking about before with Dana is really taking someone where they're at and and addressing their needs and what they need. And at the same time, opening their heart and mind through that, because then they'll start having these personal ahas about, wait a minute. Oh, and this is good for the planet, too. And this, oh, maybe, you know, so it takes them on a journey from where they're at and um, being able to address where they're at to opening their heart. That's so beautiful what you're talking about. Yeah, and I, I try and communicate too. I'm like, I make spaces in my my yard for uh, lizards, primarily two species of lizard, an alligator lizard and a blue belly lizard. And they're the dominant species that uh, I have here. Anyway, like the cockroaches, like a lot of people spray for cockroaches, but guess what? If you build habitat for birds and reptiles, like the cockroaches are there if you pick up a rotten log or whatever, but like they're, they're not causing problems. You don't, you know, they don't come into the house. You don't have to worry about that if you're afraid of a cockroach because you're creating an ecosystem that manages the pest, Right. Um, and so that's a big part of, of permaculture, but also uh, organic agriculture, regenerative agriculture is making these connections in the agro ecosystem so that you don't have to use poisons, right? Because then that has a knock on effect on things you don't want want to poison, but you're ultimately poisoning them because it's a, it's a cost benefit. 
um, especially in a super competitive agricultural system. Um, it's beyond the scope of this conversation, but our ag policy is just messed up, at, at least in, in the United States. Um, I can't speak for other countries, but um, our ag policy is so messed up that we subsidize things that don't need to be subsidized and we don't provide much financial assistance to the, the things that really matter, like the uh, high density, high, intense uh, uh, vegetable farming, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's pretty bad here as well. <laughs> I'm sure it is. It's industrial. It's capitalism, right? It's it's a system that's efficiency is another word for using more inputs. In in my opinion, that's how I conceive of it. I was, I was going to say I think we probably ought to wrap it up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm just conscious of time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to say one more thing real quick. Is to me what you're saying also is that nature has a way of balancing itself. It has its own in inherent wisdom and so we don't have to get rid of the cockroaches or things like that because there is a if you understand how to reenact that balance within then everything will be in balance and that's very indigenous also you know very much in alignment with druidism and and um, indigenous philosophy and understandings that is a real real world concept you know so Absolutely. I just want to thank you for inviting us and, and giving me the time to speak with you. I very much enjoyed really, it. Thank you. Really good. Thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Um, Marie, on, on, on that note, um, let's let's wrap up. Um, I, I, I would want to just say a, a massive thank you um, to, to, to a few people um, before we, we close the, the space, um, particularly uh, Ingrid, Cynthia and, and Karen as as looking after the techie side well done couldn't no ch chance we could have done it without you as our, our five speakers dana chief ruben harriet patricia and steve fantastic i think i've, I've learned huge amounts and and obviously you you two as as co-host marie that was fantastic and, and and obviously everybody who's 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 joined us this, this evening you know wonderful to see so many people here and 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 qu superb questions marie shall i shall i uh, do you want to say anything um, before we go and I'll, and then before I close the, the space? Um, yeah, I was going to say this afterwards, but why don't I say it now? I mean, besides the thank you that we'll get to later, um, the Order of the Oak plans to continue to build on the work that we've started here by holding future summits that address healing our planet and ourselves and the, the decisions we need to make or or have the opportunity to make, really and actions uh, that we can do to have that happen. And uh, by dissecting and addressing problems and possibilities, we can identify real world solutions. And um, remember to join our YouTube channel and stay in touch with us because we'd like to start a forum where we really start helping each other. You know, indigenous people, druidic people, all pagan people, all people, where we can really start addressing all this and bring ourselves into proper harmony and proper relationship and back into balance. So please join us in this pursuit as we save the planet and life itself. It is all up to all of us. And um, I will go into the rest of it after we have concluded the ceremony. Rich, thank you, Marie. Okay, let's just close this space then um so spirits of the east of air of the hawk of dawn and of spring we thank you for your guidance hail and farewell
spirits of the west, of water, of the salmon in the gentle stream and of autumn. We thank you for your guidance, hail and farewell. Spirits of the north, of earth, of the bear and of winter, we thank you for your guidance, hail and farewell. Spirits of the south, of fire, of the stag and of summer, we thank you for your guidance, hail and farewell. Spirits of our places, of our ancestors and those yet to be born, great spirits, universe, one voice and all that is, and of course the spirit of the oak, we thank you all for your guidance, hail and farewell. I now declare the, this conference closed. Thank you, everybody. Lovely. Um, if in the spirit of reciprocity, you would like to make a donation, um, we're, we're going to post in the, the chat. That's, that's in the chat now. And, and it's, on, it's on the website as well. Once again, we have a YouTube channel. We're going to be posting in the chat that. You can go to YouTube Order of the Oak and it should come up. We have a little intro video on that. And um, thank you, like uh, Stuart said, to all our elders, speakers, our tech people, and our ceremonialists, and my co-host Stuart, and all of you, as we need to do this together to heal the planet. It's not just on any one person's shoulders. We can relax into each other's arms and do it together and really be cheerleaders for each other and love each other through it. And it's a great opportunity and great blessing that, that we have come to this planet to do the good work. And um, I just sending love to all of you um, because I know that you are all dedicated to, to bringing your life into harmony and balance. And I'm here for you and I know we are here for you and together we are here for each other. So I just wanna bring that to the forefront as we sign out. Excellent, okay. thank you everybody. Awesome. I'd like to just recommend um, to everyone to put in themselves into gallery view and turn on your videos if you are able to do so, just to presence with one another um, that how many of us are walking this road together and that wherever we are, however we can to do what spirit is calling us and leading us. And we've gotten so much information today. I hope that you will continue to join in these events and be a part of building and growing our community of, of co-creators and collaborators in this journey together. I raise my hands to all of you. You're incredibly important. You all together are the solution. It's not just one of us. It takes a whole village. It takes us together. We are all important. We are all beloved by creator. And um, thank you so much, everyone. Just as a, another side note, this was a part of the um, Martin Luther King Building Beloved Community Convergence 40 Days of Peace and Service as an offering of the Compassion Games International and the Sign Network. And I'm going to go ahead and put the link in for the Facebook page for Compassion Games and also for the website for the Building Beloved Community. And if you're interested in following more events, please go ahead and like the Facebook page and, um, and also sign up to participate in the continuing work that is to be done.
And lastly, we have an Order of the Oak Facebook page once again. Um, if you go to the bright green tree, you can join us there. And we would love to include you in our actions and also any kind of programs that we create. We're, looking, we're always looking for contributors that have the spirit of wanting to preserve life and love life. So thank you so much.